Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today's Thursday, September 26th, and uh, I'll be very honest, uh, it's, it's early in the morning for me. I usually record this podcast in the afternoon or at night. Not today. It's 8 in the morning. I'm trying to get this out as quickly as I possibly can. Um, I did a different intro today. I get a lot of comments sometimes. People say, I don't like the intro. It's do this or that. So I'm going to just test it out. See how you guys like it. See how I like it without the music and the, oh my goodness, and all the stuff. I like the theatrics, but I'm going to try it without. See how I like it. If I, if I hate it, I'll go back to the other way. If you guys love it without it, maybe I'll do it this way. I don't know. I'm just going to try it out. Okay, I want to be very, very honest with you guys today. Um, I made what I believe is a tactical error this week. In my opinion, this episode is late. And I want to apologize and be very honest about what happened. Um, this episode, today's episode, has five film analysis topics. I've never done that many in one episode. We're doing a, a film analysis on Daniel Jones, the Giants quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, the Saints quarterback, Kyle Allen, the Panthers quarterback, Mason Rudolph, the Steelers quarterback, and Josh Rosen, the Dolphins quarterback. Five film analysis videos I'm very, very excited to share. I think they're high-quality content. I think my content this episode could be the best sports content made all week. But I will acknowledge uh, the problem with that is that this episode took way longer to make than I expected and way longer to prepare than I thought it would have. I watched a lot of film. It took a long time. And so what I should have done this week was record an episode at the beginning of the week and then a second episode later at the end of the week. The first episode would not have had any film analysis videos. The second would have. And so I learned a lesson moving forward, and I want to give you guys, the viewers, uh, an expectation to understand and what you can expect as a listener. Moving forward, my goal is to record a podcast every Tuesday and Friday. On Tuesdays and on Fridays, you can expect that Strong Opinion Sports will be recorded. I want to give you some kind of consistency and give you something to follow and expect. And so uh, as a result of my stupidity this week, I learned a lesson from it. I think it's good for the show in the long run, but I wanted to be very honest. Uh, so this episode is going to be probably... The longest episode I've ever made. It might not be. It's going to definitely push one of the NFL Predictions podcast episodes. It's going to be very long. Um, and because this episode is basically an entire week's worth of content in one show rather than multiple shows, it's a lot. And so I want to be very, you know, if you need to, here's what I do with podcasts that are really long. I listen to part of it. I pause it. And then I pick it up the next day. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast on Thursday for like an hour and be like, oh, pause and finish the next hour on Friday. If, if that, whatever works for you, but if you need to do that, I understand it's very long. Today's episode is chock full of so many good uh, topics and so much stuff. I'm doing a topic on five NFL teams I was wrong about so far. That'll be fun. I'm going to eat some crow a little bit, talk about where I was wrong. We'll do the five film analysis topics, plus we're going to talk about LSU quarterback Joe Burrow, we'll talk about Jalen Hurts, the quarterback of Oklahoma, Jim Harbaugh, my dream college football playoff scenario, we'll talk about Lamar Jackson, we'll talk about UCLA football, all kinds of great stuff. We're doing Ask Zach, I think it's the, the deepest and richest Ask Zach I've ever done. This episode's awesome. I'm, I'm very proud of what I'm putting out today. Uh, another weird factor this week that I want to you know, talk about is that tonight I'm heading to Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, you know, I'm going to be broadcasting Washington State University playing Utah on the radio. Uh, very, very excited. If you're there at Utah and you want to say hi, please reach out to me. I've had a lot of people already send me messages, say, hey, Zach, where can I find you? So I DM them, say, hey, I'll be at the game. Come say hi if you want. I'll meet you. We can take, I, I 
think it'd be cool to meet people and take pictures with them. I, I know that's weird and maybe it makes me sound conceited. I think it sounds fun. I want to meet the people who listen to my show. I, I don't meet that many fans. And so when I can meet people who like what I do and are a fan of what I do, that's awesome. Because most people in my life, let's be honest, my family, they don't listen to my podcast. Like it's not – and I just would love to hear people who actually like my content and meet them in, in person. That would be really, really cool. I want to – I was going to start with Joe Burrow today, but I want to briefly touch on something. At the beginning of the year, I said that we should all enjoy Drew Brees and Tom Brady this year because this could be the final year we ever get to see Tom Brady and Drew Brees, Drew Brees play quarterback in the NFL. I, I, I mentioned this in news because you know Tom Brady is getting up there at age. Drew Brees is getting older. Right now, Drew Brees is injured. He's out for six weeks. He had to get surgery on his thumb. And Tom Brady apparently is limited in practice because of his age. He wants to take fewer reps and conserve his body. And so I just want to echo that sentiment I left at the beginning of the year. If you like Tom Brady and Drew Brees, enjoy it. And even if you hate them, enjoy hating them. Because this is probably the last year we're going to get both of them in the NFL at the same time. I don't know which one's going to retire. Maybe they both do. Maybe neither do, but you're not guaranteed anything. And so as a football fan, I just would really urge you, when you get a moment to sit down and watch a game and watch Tom Brady this year, and watch Drew Brees this year. Enjoy it a little extra because this might be the last season we ever get to watch them play. Just relish it all. The hatred, the anger, the fun. If you like them, whatever it is. Whatever that feeling they give you, relish that feeling and enjoy it because this could be the last time and the last year we ever feel those feelings. All right. Um, Joe Burrow's story is one of my favorite stories in all of college football. It's awesome. I, I, you know, he is currently the quarterback at LSU. He's the quarterback at LSU. Be, be very clear. He's the quarterback at LSU. And he used to be a quarterback at Ohio State. His story is the story of a guy chasing his dream and succeeding big time. It, it, to me, it's awesome. And let me make it very, very clear. You know, he doesn't have the biggest arm in the world. He's not the best athlete. Joe Burrow is not Lamar Jackson. He can't run like Lamar Jackson. He can't throw like Patrick Mahomes. He's a solid average quarterback, like from a physical standpoint. And when he was at Ohio State, Ohio State had a quarterback named Dwayne Haskins. And they loved Haskins. He was fantastic. He had 50 touchdowns for them last year. And he went on to be the 17th overall pick in the NFL draft. Ohio State was not trying to disrespect Joe Burrow. But they had a guy they believed in who they thought was special. And unfortunately for Joe Burrow, he was not the guy they believed in or thought was special. They named Dwayne Haskins the starter and they made Burrow the backup. But Joe believed in himself. He knew he could play somewhere. And in fact, I have no doubt in the middle of their, you know, their quarterback battle, when he was battling Dwayne Haskins for the starting job, I have no doubt that encouraged him. Hey, I'm doing really well. I can play. I can move the ball. I'm running this offense well. It gave him confidence. I'm sure of it. Enough confidence that he said, I'm going to go somewhere else and get a chance to play because I believe in myself. He's like, man, I'm right there. I'm so close. I just need to find a school that believes in me the way Ohio State believes in 
and the way they want Dwayne Haskins. So he did. That's what he did. He'd gotten his degree in three years, and he elected a graduate transfer to LSU. I want to say Louisiana State. I don't know why. It's LSU. I don't know them as Louisiana State. We all know them as the LSU Tigers. And because he'd redshirted his first year, Joe Burrow had two years of eligibility after transferring. So he became the starting quarterback at LSU. And in his first year, they went 10-3. and three. Awesome. He had 10 wins. They won the Fiesta Bowl. And Joe Burrow was solid. He had 16 touchdowns, five interceptions, 2,864 yards, a 57% completion percentage. Nothing really elite, but hey, that's a solid year. You won 10 games. You moved the ball. You had okay stats. Congratulations, Joe Burrow. You got your dream. You became a starting college quarterback. And for some guys, that's enough. But here's what's really, really cool. When the year ended, he worked his butt off in the offseason. He worked extremely, extremely hard. And this year in 2019, he has elevated his level of play. You don't need to hear stories about his work ethic. It's very obvious on the field. He's a different quarterback. So in 13 games last year, 16 touchdowns, 5 interceptions, 2,894 yards, and a 57% completion percentage. He had 16 touchdowns in 13 games. Well, this year in just four games, he has 17 touchdowns. He has more touchdowns in four games this year than he had all season last year. He has 17 touchdowns, two interceptions, an 80% completion percentage, and 1,520 yards. Last week, he broke the school record for touchdown passes in a single game. He had six against Vanderbilt. His footwork's better than I've ever seen. And what that tells me is that not only has he mastered the offense, right? And not that, look, when a guy's footwork gets better, it means he's in total control and really knows where he's going the ball every single play. And he's, he's done a ton of mental reps, and he's probably run the plays a million times in his head in his bedroom going, Bam, read one, read two, read three, bam, 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 going through all the stuff in his head. So he's mastered this offense. But better footwork also has elevated his accuracy. He's making great decisions. His arm looks stronger. He slightly tweaked his mechanics. And he's moving really well in the pocket. Everything I see from Joe Burrow is really, really cool. And I'll be honest, I cannot remember the last time LSU had a truly elite college quarterback. Now, they once had a guy named Zat Mettenberger. The guy was not elite. He had a giant arm. He could throw really far. Wasn't an elite quarterback. So here's the story to me. Joe Burrow left Ohio State. And, and I have no doubt that when he left this, the program, there are some people, not, I don't know that everybody, but some people I'm sure called him a quitter for leaving that program. Whenever you transfer, that's what happens to you. But I will admit that most Buckeye fans seem to recognize the guy just wanted to play and get on the field and they root for him like from afar. This story is not about Ohio State. And it's also not about LSU. That's where he went to LSU. It's not about LSU. The story to me is that Joe Burrow had a dream and he fought hard to make it happen. He wanted to be a starting quarterback in college. He did not want to be a backup he did not want to just be on a team. He was not interested in sitting on the sideline watching another quarterback play. His dream was to be a starting quarterback and play on Saturdays. And he fought for that. He made a situation. He created a situation at LSU by transferring where 
he could have an opportunity to get on the field. That opportunity simply was not going to happen for him at Ohio State. And it's so cool that he made a move. Transferring's hard. It's not fun. You miss your friends. You miss relationships. You feel weird about it because you're leaving a team that you made bonds with. He left one team, created a new opportunity with another team. And he is, God, he is shining. He's doing fantastic. To me, that is so cool. That's a story I love. I'm not sure if Joe Burrow is going to be an NFL franchise quarterback. You know, he's, he's got an average arm. He's not really the most physically talented. But what I'll tell you is if he keeps progressing and keeps getting better, he could surprise people. The way Gardner Minshew, actually. Gardner Minshew surprised people by jumping in the NFL and improving his level of play. His footwork was better. His arm strength was better. Joe Burrow could be similar. If he keeps getting better like he did from last year to this year, from this year to next year, that's awesome. And he, he makes great decisions with the football. He's overcome a lot of obstacles to get where he is. Joe Burrow, to me, he fought hard. He battled. And he improved a ton. He created his own opportunity and made himself an elite college quarterback. And to me, that is why Joe Burrow is one of the most inspiring people in all of college football right now. I love it. I love his story. I'm rooting for him. It's really fun to watch. I want to now shift gears from another, from one elite college quarterback to another. Jalen Hurts is the quarterback at Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. And man, the dude is playing phenomenal. It is so much fun to watch Jalen Hurts play well. And only three games, and a lot of teams have played four games, by the way. They had a bye week at Oklahoma during the third week of, during the fourth week of the college football season. In only three games, Jalen Hurts has thrown for 880 yards, nine touchdowns, zero interceptions, has an 80% completion percentage. He's also run for four touchdowns and 373 yards. Not to mention, by the way, he's not playing entire games, right? <laughs> Jalen Hurts, they're blowing teams out. He's coming out early. So he could have much better stats if he played an entire game. But what's cool to me about Jalen Hurts is that he's throwing the ball better than I've ever seen in my entire life. This is a guy a couple of years ago who, you know, like his freshman year at Alabama and the year after that, Jalen Hurts was known as the guy who struggles to throw the football. That was literally like how I looked, viewed him. I was like, ah, oh, you know, he's the guy who runs really well for Alabama, who can make a throw to a guy wide open, but he's really not an elite quarterback. He's not an elite thrower of the football. No, he's become, he's elevated himself, and Jalen Hurts has become an elite thrower of the football. That fires me up. That's so awesome. He has completely transformed himself as a quarterback in the past time he's been, from, from the time he left Alabama. I, I think he did really well in that, what was that, the SEC championship game. He really imp- impressed a lot of people, impressed me, and I was like, Wow. He might be, like, way better, and apparently he is, and he's gotten even better from that SEC championship game to now. He's mastered that offense. He's been determined, and I love watching Jalen Hurts' intensity in interviews. He is a man on a mission, right? He got rejected by Alabama, and he's on a mission to go win a national championship at Oklahoma. Let's dive into that. I said he got rejected at Alabama. If you know the history of Jalen Hurts, He had to transfer away from Alabama to get on the field, right? And look, him and Alabama had a good and a healthy end, right? He left Alabama on good terms. When they were up by a lot, Alabama made sure to get Jalen Hurts into the game. But the long and the short of it, though, is that 
while he left on good terms and while he likes Nick Saban and it seems like everything's good, right? His relationship with Alabama, he earned a lot of people's respect and left well. The truth is he had a lot of success at Alabama. And then they picked another guy. They picked Tua. He eventually was beat out by Tua Tungvaloa. He had to leave Alabama. And now that he left, he's playing amazing. He's a much better quarterback. My buddy texted me a couple days ago. We were having a conversation, and um, and he's in the military. We we talk frequently. And he said, would Nick Saban, Alabama's head coach, he said, do you think Nick Saban is going to regret losing Jalen Hurts? And the short answer is no, right? They have Tua. Tua's a Heisman Trophy candidate. Some people think he's the best player in all of college football. Their quarterback is really good at Alabama. The guy they replaced Jalen Hurts with is fantastic. And by the way, how cool is it that two of the guys at the top of the Heisman watch list are Tua, an Alabama quarterback, and Jalen Hurts, a former Alabama quarterback? I'm not an Alabama fan or anything, but that's just a weird, unique little circumstance. We've never seen that before, and that's really cool. But here's what I told my buddy. I told him that this whole entire experience has made Jalen a better quarterback in all aspects. The struggle, the pain of having to leave and having a school choose another guy and leaving a place you like and you put so much work into. The pain of losing a spot and having to transfer, that gives Jalen Hurts more depth as a person and makes him a better leader. He's a better leader because of what he went through at Alabama. He already was a great leader with a bunch of depth. But now at Oklahoma, everyone knows why he's there. He's a man on a mission. It's really cool. He's purpose-driven. And Oklahoma seems to be accepting that and following him with everything they have. Another cool thing is that the loss, that pain, has caused him to work incredibly hard. Jalen Hurts has become a better quarterback because of what he went through. He transformed his game. I don't need to ask a bunch of people at Oklahoma, hey, does, uh, does Jalen Hurts have a good work ethic? Does he work hard? <laughs> It is so apparent when you watch Saturdays, you go, oh my gosh, that guy is in the weight room. He's studying the playbook. He's 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 taking care of his body. Everything Jalen Hurts could be doing to put himself in a position to be successful, it's very clear to me he's doing that. He's following the program. He's bought in. He's working his butt off. Man, it's so cool to see. I am so excited to see where Jalen Hurts is going to go this year, what he's going to accomplish. You know, the pain of transferring hurts, and it's hard. But Jalen Hurts has really become a man on a mission. And I'm, I'm rooting for him. I can't wait to see what he does this year. Man, uh, you know, there are four teams I really, really want to see make the college football playoff. In fact, I would call this my, my dream college football playoff. This is what I want to happen. This is what I'm rooting for. I have no idea, by the way, how this could happen because of the four teams I chose to make the college football playoff, and not this is not a prediction, by the way. This is me, a dream, a hope. It's not realistic. We're living in fantasy land, but in my fantasy land, somehow Clemson does not make it into <laughs> the college football playoff, and that's how you know that we're living clearly in a fantasy land. This is not realistic. But this is my dream college football playoff. Number one, I want Alabama to play Oklahoma. I want Jalen Hurts to go play against his old school. 
To me, the story is just too rich. Jalen versus Tua versus Nick Saban. And it'd be interesting because nobody on Alabama's side hates Jalen Hurts, right? He left on good terms. They respect him. The fans from afar, Alabama fans root for Jalen Hurts. The one time they would not root for Jalen Hurts is when Jalen Hurts plays against Alabama. It just would be an emotional and fun game, and that's what I want. I like drama. I like intrigue and chaos, and that is exactly what Alabama against Oklahoma would be. So that's my first dream game. You're getting Jalen versus Tua, and plus it'd be a rematch of last year's college football playoff when Alabama played Oklahoma. Be awesome. My second dream game is this. I really want to see LSU play Ohio State. And if it doesn't happen in the playoff, I hope they both don't make the playoff and they get a bowl game against each other because I so badly want to see Joe Burrow play against his old school Ohio State. Just say, hey, look, this is what I can do. This is what you missed out on. Have fun with Justin Fields, right? Not in a, a mean way, just saying, look, I'm really good and I can play. It'd be fun to have him prove it in front of them on a, a, in a bowl game or in a, hopefully a college football playoff game. That'd be awesome because I want the, the tension, the drama, the high stakes of win or go home. And if you win, you move on to play another team. That's what I want to see in the future. I want to see LSU play Ohio State. And if I can, I want it to be in the college football playoff because I think that'd be so much fun. Look, I, I have no idea. I don't see a future where this actually happens because the problem is Alabama and LSU are both <laughs> they're both in the SEC. And they both play each other this year and would, I think, I think I don't know how exactly. I'm sorry, I wish I knew. I don't know how the SEC is configured. I think they'd play each other again in the, you know, I think they're actually in the same division. The SEC. I have no idea. But the point is, I don't see a world where either, both Clemson doesn't make it in and then two, where LSU and Alabama both make it into the playoff. I don't think it's possible. But man, I can acknowledge that's a dream I have. That's something I want to see. How cool would that be to see these two teams, these four teams, you know, two great matchups in a row. Drama, chaos, emotion, fun. That is what I want from the college football playoff. I don't want to see blowouts. I don't want to see, I want to see good storylines with rich emotion and a lot to root for. And so that is what I want. It's a dream. It's not going to happen, but that's what I would love to see. It's my dream college football play. Remember, that's Zach's fantasy land. That's not going to happen, but that would be really fun if it did. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When I return, we're doing five film analysis videos. I'm very excited. Daniel Jones, Kyle Allen, Teddy Bridgewater, Mason Rudolph, Josh Rosen. Plus, later, we're going to talk about Jim Harbaugh, the quarterback of Michigan. He lost. It was embarrassing. People are mad at him. Lamar Jackson, UCLA football. My voice cracked. That happens. I'm young. It works. Um, We're going to do a bunch of NFL stuff. There's a segment where I talk about coming up where I share the five teams I believe I got wrong so far in the NFL for my prediction show. We'll talk about Ask Zach. We'll do the segment Ask Zach. I think it's really the richest Ask Zach I've ever done. And um, now I want to shift gears, though. Before we take a break, I want to talk about this is the one topic I do every episode. It's really important to me. I've got a lot of messages from people that this means a lot to them. It means a lot to me. Uh, and it's, I think, the most important topic I do every single episode of Strong Opinion Sports. I'm, I'm urging you and I'm begging you, if you're struggling, please go get help. I know it sounds cheesy. I don't like the transition from excited to this is, is weird and jarring, but it, I really want you to listen. Three years ago, my younger brother took his life. I guess you call it committing suicide. Some people get mad when you say that. I, I, he took his life, right? And to me, it was heartbreaking. 
and awful. I miss my brother very much. His name was Zane. Great kid. And through my brother's death, I learned two really valuable, important lessons. I try to share them literally every single episode because it means that much to me. The first lesson is this. My brother never shared his struggles. He never talked to anybody. We, we, nobody had any idea that he was struggling or having a hard time. And so I encourage you, if you're having a hard time, please reach out to somebody. Reach out to a friend. Talk to somebody. If you're struggling, please go get help. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Man, I've done this topic so many times. I've memorized that number. It's, it's a huge, please. And I really, you don't need, you don't necessarily need a hotline. Talk to your friends, man. I saw my brother once a week every day. We were once, I'm going to that doesn't make sense. I saw my brother at least once a week. We worked together. And then outside of work, we would hang out. We'd play video games once a week. We had a night where I came over. I brought my Xbox to his house. He had opportunities and he never told me, hey man, I'm having a hard time. And part of that's on him. Part of that's on me though too. This is the second painful lesson is that I didn't do a good enough job making it clear to my brother, hey, I love you. I'm here for you. If you need help, if you need someone to talk to, if you need someone to vent to, if you're struggling at all, please come to me. I didn't do a good enough job as an older brother saying, hey man, I'm here for you. If you need something, please reach out. So I'm, I'm asking you, please, if you're struggling, get help. Talk to somebody. Don't keep your struggles a secret. My brother didn't tell anyone. And one day I came home, he was dead on the floor in his bedroom and nobody knew it was coming. But the second thing is this, man. It's not just, it's not just on the people who are struggling to reach out. It's your job as a friend. If you love the people, make sure you, they know they're loved by you. You care about them. You're there for them. Help the people in life. Reach out to them and make sure that they know you're there for them, you love them, and you have their back. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, this is the first of five film analysis topics I'm going to do. I am so excited right it's going to be a bunch of work to edit these i'm not looking forward to it at all but i i think it's really good now i'm just excited to share right my thoughts and to show you not just tell you but show you the things i'm talking about with these five quarterbacks i want to start by doing this i want everybody to learn the name kyle allen kyle allen is a panthers quarterback he's a second year quarterback he was not drafted he had to move around in college and uh, on Saturday, he started for the Carolina Panthers. And by the way, he was fantastic. Awesome. Really fun to watch. He was 19 for 26 passing, had, 70, had a 73% completion percentage, 261 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, but he did have a fumble. I acknowledge he had a fumble. We'll talk about it in a minute. But I want to start right off the bat by talking about Kyle Allen's very first pass. It's a run-pass option. What that means is that the Panthers called a running play, but if the Cardinals commit a ton of defenders to stop the run, then Kyle can throw the ball instead. So when he snaps the ball, he puts his eyes on number 58, linebacker Jordan Hicks. If Jordan Hicks backs way off, Kyle will simply hand the ball. He'll say, hey, running back, take the ball, run for yards. But if Jordan Hicks steps toward the line of scrimmage to stop the run, and if Kyle believes he can throw the ball behind him, he'll throw the seam ball to Greg Olson. That's exactly what he does. You know, Hicks steps toward the line of scrimmage. Now, he does quickly recover. Greg Olson is not wide open. But Kyle Allen throws a perfect pass for a 17-yard completion. Now, his second throw comes on a play where the Cardinals are running cover one. 
That means every single receiver has a man covering him who will follow him wherever he goes. That also means there's one high safety in the middle of the field who is free to read the quarterback's eyes and help with coverage deep over the top. On this play, the Cardinals also have a linebacker sitting inside, number 43, Hassan Riddick. He doesn't have a man to cover. He's just looking to help cover any short routes in the middle of the field. The Panthers' offense runs two slants breaking to the inside, with running back Christian McCaffrey running an outside route to the flat. Now, because the Cardinals are playing man coverage, number 58 Jordan Hicks has to run all the way outside and chase Christian McCaffrey. But the genius of this play design is that the two slants get in the way and slow him down, which leaves McCaffrey wide open for a 14-yard gain. It's a good play call, plus a great understanding of the defense by Kyle Allen. Now, uh, the first drive had a disappointing end. He was sacked and fumbled. Now, the simple lesson to be learned from this play is that he only had one hand on the football while he was looking downfield. This play is why coaches tell young quarterbacks, hey, make sure you got two hands on the ball when you're reading a defense. With two hands on the ball, you're less likely to fumble. If you get hit with one hand on the ball, it's likely the ball comes out of your hands. The first drive had an unfortunate end. But Kyle Allen's second drive is where things really get exciting. His first pass is another RPO. This time, the read is more based on pre-snap alignment of the defense. You know, the corner is lined up 10 yards off the receiver and outside shade, way to the outside. By his alignment, he's allowing the receiver to get a free release inside. So Panthers receiver Curtis Samuel runs a five-step slant to the inside. They snap the ball. They run play action inside. The defender steps down to stop the run. Kyle Allen pulls the ball and throws behind the linebackers. Now, to be clear, if he'd seen anything he didn't like, it would have just handed the ball off. But based on the pre-snap alignment, he really liked it. He had a great completion. One more cool wrinkle to this whole play is that you can run the exact same look with the running back and the offensive line. But if the corner's alignment had been inside or head up instead, Curtis Samuel could have simply run a 10-yard out instead. Now, I want to show you the rest of this drive, though. The next two plays are really cool. They're nerdy and, and weird, but they also are very important. On the surface, they're simple checkdowns. So two plays in a row, Kyle Allen read the defense. He didn't like what he saw, and he had a short completion of his running back, Christian McCaffrey. Two short completions in a row, boring, like, yeah, Zach, why do I care? And I'll be honest, I don't love a guy who throws checkdowns the entire game. But you also should not force the ball deep into coverage. So on first down, they gained three yards. And on second and seven, they gained another two. What that did is now it's third down and they're in a good situation. And it's third and five. What does Kyle Allen do on third and five? He makes one of his very best throws of the entire day. He's not timid. He's not shy. He throws the ball accurately into a really tight window. The drive continues. And by the way, that was a great catch. But the drive continues. And he makes a series of really good decisions in a row. In fact, the entire game, he just repeatedly did the right thing. He doesn't force the ball into coverage. And other than his fumble, he had a really limited number of plays where he did something wrong or negative. But here's how that drive ended. On second and goal, he rolls to the right and nobody's open. He simply throws the ball away into the stands. And it's so important not only to know when to throw the ball, but also when not to throw the ball and to live to see another day. So the very next play, it's third and five, a similar situation. He rolls to the right, extending the play. And this time, 
There's a man open. He throws a touchdown. Here's what Kyle Allen brings to the Carolina Panthers that I love so much. One, he made great throws against man coverage. He made really good decisions with the football. And he had very limited bat plays. He had one play. He had the fumble. I didn't love it. But other than that, he made great decisions all day. Eliminating negative plays, not forcing the ball downfield into coverage. And the truth is this, when they needed him to, Kyle Allen made big-time throws downfield. I was really, really impressed with the way he played last Sunday. And I'll be very clear. His success was not an accident. If he continues to make great decisions and make great throws, he's going to have success for a long, long time in the NFL. The way he played on Sunday is a very sustainable brand of football. I believe in Kyle Allen. I do. I think he's awesome. Unless he just drastically changes something, the success is going to continue. And I think it's even possible. He got it suggested after watching what we saw on Sunday. Dude, he could be the future of the Carolina Panthers. What he did on Sunday was that successful. He succeeded because he made great decisions. He shredded man coverage with his arm. He took care of the ball. And he made numerous good throws downfield. That's not an accident. That's not a fluke. That is really good quarterback play. I believe in Kyle Allen, and I believe he will continue to succeed in the future. All right, uh, Josh Rosen. Man, oh gosh, Uh, I feel so bad for the Miami Dolphins quarterback, Josh Rosen. Last year, he was a quarterback for the Cardinals, and they were awful, by the way. They were the worst team in all of football. Well, he got traded to the Dolphins, and somehow... He ended up on an even worse football team. Awful, awful, awful. Uh, last year, Josh Rosen was a bit of a mess, right? He had a number of mistakes, and he was part of the problem. That's why he got traded away. Josh Rosen was not great. He was a large part of why, part of the problem as to why the Arizona Cardinals were so bad last year. But on Sunday, in his first start for the Miami Dolphins, he actually looked much improved, way better as a quarterback. But his team is... <laughs> This team is absolutely awful. They suck. The people around him all are terrible. Coaches, players, offensive linemen, it's all bad. So he had his first start against the Dallas Cowboys. He was 18 for 39 passing. That's a 46% completion percentage. That is not encouraging if you go by just the numbers. He had 200 passing yards exactly, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. But his stats were completely misleading. This is why I hate when people focus their entire analysis on just the stats. They go, man, the numbers were bad. Clearly Josh Rosen is bad. Or the numbers were good and clearly this guy is good. Sometimes the numbers are not an accurate description of what happened. I'll tell you right off the bat, when you watch Josh Rosen throw, you know, man, this guy can make great throws and beat man coverage. When you watch the film, you go, this guy's accurate and can make great throws when he's asked to. But he also, in this game, against the Cowboys, he made a ton of great decisions. He regularly was taking what the defense gave him. He did not force the ball downfield into coverage. I was really, really impressed with the way that Josh Rosen played. His stats suck. That's not an accurate description of what happened. Now, I want to be very upfront and honest. There are a couple mistakes Josh Rosen made. I want to get them into the skeletons in the closet. Let's get them out in front of people. Now, neither were glaring issues, but they did happen, so we have to talk about them. But here's the good news. They're mistakes that can be solved with time. But it is important to acknowledge them. There were two plays in this game where Josh Rosen had the right idea. I thought, man, 
This is a, if you're going to make a mistake, this is not the worst mistake you can make. He had the right idea, but he was late in executing his idea. The first mistake was on a seam ball to Alan Hearns. The Dolphins run play action. Josh Rosen makes the right read, but he does it way too late. And sadly, as a result, his, bad, his, his slow decision-making process, his slow ability to read the defense, got Alan Hearns obliterated and sent to the hospital with, with a concussion. Quarterbacks have to remember, especially when you're throwing the ball over the middle of the field, every action you take and every throw you make has some kind of consequence on the field. Now, the minute Josh Rosen pops up from faking the run, he should be throwing the ball. You see, he pops up from the run fake. He scans the defense for a while. By the time he throws the ball, it's too late. He's processing the defense way too long, and that is why he's late to throw to Alan Hearns. That's one mistake. Hey, it's out there. I acknowledged it. The second one is this. It was a mixture of good timing by the defense and poor timing by Josh Rosen. The Cowboys bring a blitz off the right edge. And what this does is leave the number two receiver on the right side completely uncovered and momentarily wide open. Now the Cowboys are rolling a safety down to cover that number two receiver. So Josh Rosen tries to throw the ball immediately to this guy while he's uncovered. The problem is he does it too late. By the time Josh Rosen snaps the ball, the safety's already come down and and had an impact on the play. It's a good idea by Josh Rosen if he can make it earlier before the safety can roll down. If he can snap the ball earlier before that safety can make his move, that's a great idea. It's a great play. Instead of a great play, it's just a, a good idea that was wasted because Josh Rosen was too late in executing the idea. But man, aside from those two moments, Josh Rosen really did represent himself very well. I know the stats don't show, but he made a couple of great plays where he ran around and made something happen out of nothing. He was ad-libbing really well. And when things didn't work out perfectly, he was calm. He made things happen. I was just was so impressed. And as I mentioned earlier, he did a great job, I can't repeat this enough, of taking what the defense gave him. He didn't force the ball into coverage. He made good decisions with the football. Now, the reason the Dolphins scored only six points was not because of Josh Rosen. First of all, there were multiple just blatantly dropped passes right through guys' hands, and man, it was embarrassing. I was like, really? There was even a drop touchdown pass on third and four where Josh Rosen dialed up a perfect throw against man coverage, and the receiver could not hold on to the ball. The receivers were bad, just disappointing to watch. Another thing is that the Dolphins' offensive line (laughs) was awful. Regularly, the Cowboys brought a four-man rush. And what the Dolphins would do is leave six or seven guys in the block. That means they had six or seven blockers to stop four people. And yet still the Cowboys got constant pressure on Josh Rosen. If you have seven guys and you can't block four, that's a gigantic, gigantic problem. That happened regularly. Here's the other problem is that when you're leaving seven guys in the block for a quarterback, it creates a matchup problem downfield, a mismatch in favor of the defense. If the offense has seven guys blocking plus the quarterback in the backfield, then only three receivers can run routes downfield. In this scenario, that means the defense has seven defenders covering three receivers. It's a losing math equation. That's terrible. And, you know, I got to also mention, I was really unimpressed 
with an offense play calling. Just in general. It's like, man, you're not creating good matchups for your team. The worst play call of the entire game, though, was on a third and three later in the game. The Dolphins called a play where only three receivers were running routes downfield. Now, here's the other problem. Not just what, that there are only three receivers that they could all be covered easily. But here's the bigger problem. It's third and three. And yet all receivers ran deep, longer developing routes. Again, the Dolphins only needed three yards. The defense blitzed. And Josh Rosen, guess what? Had nobody to throw the ball to. When a defense blitzes, you want to have an outlet to get rid of the ball quickly too. There were no outlets. And because of the longer developing routes, nobody was even looking for the ball by the time Josh Rosen was sacked. Come on, guys. The Dolphins were not putting Josh Rosen into situations where he could succeed. It was horrible. He had no chance to be successful. That's awful. That's bad coaching and very disappointing to watch. The Dolphins' offensive line is terrible. They can't pass block. They can't really run block either. The Dolphins only had 72 rushing yards on Sunday, and 13 of those rushing yards came from Josh Rosen running around trying to avoid getting sacked. So aside from the plays where Josh Rosen was running, the Dolphins only had 59 rushing yards the entire game. Now here's one thing I believe the Dolphins need to do to make their lives easier, to give themselves a better chance to be successful. They need to run more screen passes. Their offensive linemen are really, really bad at individual pass blocks. They're just not talented. It's not going to be solved by the end of the year. They get beat all the time. It's really, really terrible. So the best way to succeed when you have a horrible offensive line that can't beat one-on-one blocks in the passing game is to run screen passes. That's because screens, you know, on all screens, offensive linemen make it look like they're going to block you and then let you just run right by them and go downfield to try to block other people at the next level. All the quarterback has to do is buy a little bit of time, then throw behind the defenders that are about to kill him and get the ball in the hands of a playmaker who can get downfield and make a bigger play. That's what I would watch for. If you're a Dolphins fan, watch for the way they run screens and watch for whether or not they do it more and do it more successfully. My hope is that the Dolphins start running a bunch of screen passes and get the ball in the hands of guys who are better playmakers, guys like Kenyon Drake, who can make big plays in open space, but normally have a hard time getting to open space because they can't block anything. And there's no way Kenyon Drake, the running back of the Dolphins, can ever get sprung and get into an open field situation where he can really make a big play. I think the biggest problem that Josh Rosen, the biggest challenge he's going to face all year so far, and really over the course of this year, is Josh Rosen needs to be a good leader in practice throughout the week. When you're losing and you suck, it's easy for people to become disengaged and start caring less. I know it's the NFL. I know guys are getting paid, but let's be honest, this still happens all the time. When you watch on Sunday, the effort from a lot of the receivers was just poor. Guys are not giving their best effort all the time. And there was one play where Josh Rosen made a really great pre-snap read. The Dolphins had a running play called, but nowadays most running plays, let's be honest, are plays where, you know, if the quarterback likes what they see, they have an option to throw the ball anyways. That's how running plays are. All throws now have an option to throw, all running plays now have an option to throw the ball. So the defender over the number two receiver blitzed into the run. This left the number two wide receiver uncovered and wide open. So guess what Rosen did? He made a great heads up play. He threw him the ball. 
but neither receiver on that side of the field was even looking for the ball. I think their attitude was, hey, it's a run play. We're just going to take this one off, not give a good effort. It was the right read by Rosen. You could see it. Watch him after the play. He's yelling and pointing. He's like, look, he did the right thing. And so this is a good lesson for Josh Rosen as a leader. He has to do a good job throughout the week to work hard to make sure everybody around him knows the entire game plan and all the little adjustments throughout the game. You got to make sure your guys know that. You got to get on the same page. You got to be that annoying guy. Hey, man. Hey, Drew. Do you know you got to look for the ball quickly? Do you know this? Do you know that? Be that guy. That's what he has to do is pick up his team and make sure everybody's on the same page. That's on Josh Rosen. He has to do more work than normal because the guys around him suck. It's hard, but it's going to make him a better leader in the long run if he embraces that role. The truth is I feel really bad for Josh Rosen. He's in a horrible situation. He's not a bad quarterback, but everyone around him sucks. And all Josh Rosen can do is the best he can with what he has. Now, I do also want to talk about, long and the short is, I feel bad for Rosen. But there's one more thing I want to talk about that I think will appeal to Dolphins fans watching this video. Uh, The Dolphins ran an onside kick on Sunday, and they got it. They recovered the ball. It was awesome. It was fun to watch. But it was called back because supposedly one of the Dolphins was offsides. Now, I watched this play. And I paused it at the kick. And guess what? Nobody's offsides. And <laughs> even more is even after the ball is gone, the ball has been kicked, there's still nobody offsides. This was a bad call. I feel bad for the Dolphins. They got robbed. They should have gotten the ball after the onside kick recovery. It should have been their ball. And instead, the refs made a bad call and kind of screwed them over. I just wanted to point that out. I saw it on film. I was like, I have nowhere to put this other than at the end of the Josh Rosen video where Dolphins fans might see it. Uh, The Dolphins got robbed. I feel bad for them. Okay, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we're going to jump back into a couple more film analysis topics. We'll do Daniel Jones. We'll talk about Teddy Bridgewater and Mason Rudolph. And then later in the show, we'll talk about five NFL teams I've been wrong about so far this NFL season. We'll talk about Jim Harbaugh, the head coach of Michigan, who got badly beaten. Guys are calling for his job. I'll share my reaction to all that. We're going to talk about UCLA football. We'll talk about Lamar Jackson. And I have a cool quarterback story about a guy named Kyle Trask who did something kind of uh, unexpected and cool. And even farther towards the end of the show, we'll do Ask Zach. It's one of the deepest segments I've ever done. Another thing we're going to talk about, I added this later, is uh, Derek King. He's a guy who has got a weird story going on in college football. It's something I've never, ever seen before. And then at the very end of the show, we'll talk about storylines for next week in the NFL. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break, and I will be... Right back. All right, we are back. We have a couple film analysis topics left I want to do. I want to start with Daniel Jones. So, Daniel Jones, the Giants rookie quarterback, had a wild, wild day last Sunday. He had his first ever NFL start. He was 23 for 36 passing at 336 passing yards, two passing touchdowns, another two rushing touchdowns. And he led the Giants for a come-from-behind victory in the fourth quarter, had a a final score on fourth and seven to win the game. And I saw a lot of good in this game. It was awesome. I saw a lot of good and a little bit of bad. We'll start with the good stuff I saw. It was immediately obvious Daniel Jones is a much more capable quarterback than the former Giants starter Eli Manning. He dialed up big-time throws into tight windows. 
He made great decisions with the ball. He took short passes underneath. Daniel Jones' physical ability allowed the Giants head coach, Pat Shermer, to open up the playbook. When Pat Shermer was offensive coordinator for the Vikings, we saw really great play calling and great design over and over again. And we finally saw that again. It's funny how once he got a good quarterback who could throw the ball over the field, oh, oh, wow, we got to see Pat Shermer's great play calling once again. It was cool. It was fun. Now, I want to credit Daniel Jones. He made a ton of big plays. He was fun to watch. And he elevated to the moment late in the fourth quarter of the game on Sunday. He just started dropping dimes, making plays. They call him Danny Dimes. There is a reason for that. He played fantastic. And the the cool thing to me is that he was clutch when his team needed him. His ability to run and extend plays opened up a whole new dynamic for the Giants offense. Giants fans haven't seen that from their football team in a long, long time. My dynamic quarterback who can run around and extend plays. Man, I'm just like personally really, really excited to watch Daniel Jones throughout the rest of this year. He ran. He avoided sacks. He made plays on third down. And most importantly, aside from all the amazing highlights, is that he galvanized his team and gave them hope. I have so much good to say about Daniel Jones. He was fantastic. I can't repeat that enough. And galvanizing your team and leading them to victory, to me, that's what great leaders do. And that Daniel Jones, as a rookie quarterback, is really doing great stuff all over the field. Now, the other point is that he was really, really accurate. You know, even his incompletions were regularly on target. They were great throws that just barely missed. And I love this guy's arm talent. It's fantastic. Even his bad throws, you're still like, wow, that's pretty dang close. So, he played outstanding. But Daniel Jones is not perfect. You got to realize something. He's played in only two games this year. Two games. He played one full game last Sunday against the Buccaneers. He played a part of a game, a handful of plays against the Cowboys earlier this year. He's played in two games this year, and he has three fumbles. He's fumbled three times in one and a half, like one and a quarter of a game. That's not great, not good at all. And I admit, you know, some of those plays were bad luck, but it's still worth noting. And that's something to look forward to in the future for Daniel Jones. He's not perfect. And neither is the Giants' offensive line. I said last week the Giants' offensive line wasn't great. And saying the words wasn't great got me a firestorm of hate from Giants fans. So much pushback from angry Giants fans. And, you know, I want to be very clear. I stand by what I said. I don't care what some website ranked the Giants' offensive line. Get out of here. I don't care about some dumb ranking. It's not my opinion. That's their opinion. Good for them. The Giants' offensive line is not awful. I'm not saying that. Is anybody saying that? They're not awful. But they're not elite. They're not great. When I watch the film, I repeatedly see a lot of pressure on Daniel Jones. I see the guy having to run around, having to extend plays. Thankfully, he's capable of moving around. Thankfully, he's capable of avoiding sacks. But, you know, the Giants' offensive line isn't perfect. Everyone acts like they're amazing, and I got a lot of pushback. They're not great. They're okay. They're solid. They have things they need to work on, though, for sure. You got to take note. You know, a couple times, the Buccaneers' edge rush created big-time problems for the Giants' offensive line and for their protection schemes. That's something that other teams are going to try to copy. Now, there were also two throws by Daniel Jones where he showed his youth. The protection was a problem uh, at times, but also he really showed, hey, I'm a young rookie quarterback. I'm going to make mistakes. 
on both those plays, defenders baited Daniel Jones into throwing the ball at them. One of them should have been intercepted. There was a play. The first one, the safety was sitting in the middle of the field just waiting for Daniel Jones to throw the ball over the middle. And he did exactly that. The Giants ran an in-breaking route. And really, I mean, the Buccaneers should have had an interception. The guy dropped the pick, but it was like right in his hands. Should have been a pick. The biggest difference when you jump from college football to the NFL is guys are just much faster. They can break on the ball way quicker and get to the ball a lot faster. A similar thing happened later in the game. Danny threw an out route to the right. And the corner was sitting waiting for it, baiting him to throw the ball to the outside. So look, there's just a couple moments where Daniel Jones, you go, oh, he's, he's made mistakes and he's young. He's a young quarterback who's got baited a couple times by defenders. So there's a couple things Giants fans should look forward to and, and really pay attention to over the next couple weeks throughout this season by Daniel Jones. One is, will he keep fumbling? Three fumbles in two games. Not great. Is is the trend going to continue? Is he fumble prone? The second thing is that will the Giants offensive line keep allowing pressure at him? Is he going to have to run around and avoid sacks and make plays? Or are they going to tighten things up and start protecting him a little better? And the third thing is he's been baited in the throws twice now. Eventually, will those turn into interceptions? He had a dropped interception this week and he could have had a second one on that out route. Are, Are those... Is, he, is his youth going to lead to him throwing interceptions later down the road? He's young. You know, the fourth thing you got to remember is that, please, enjoy, enjoy Daniel Jones. He's a great quarterback. I like him. He's young. He's going to make mistakes. But he's also immensely, immensely talented. As a football fan, as a guy, I, I love quarterbacks. It's my favorite position in sports. I love analyzing them and talking about them. I'm really, really excited to watch Daniel Jones this year. I think it has a lot of special stuff, and uh, it's going to be a blast. Now, the Giants will not have Saquon Barkley, their star running back, for a couple of weeks. He has a sprained ankle. And I think they're going to manage all right without him. They're going to miss his big explosive plays. Do not get me wrong. They're going to miss Saquon Barkley's ability to instantly get like 70 yards downfield and make a giant play. But they can win games without him. I think I think they can. At least, I don't think they're going to be any worse without him either, right? They have a quarterback, finally, who can win games, Daniel Jones. I believe in Daniel Jones. And let's be very clear. You know, last year, even with Saquon Barkley on the field, <laughs> the Giants went 5-11. and 11. It's not like Saquon Barkley is the deciding factor whether or not the Giants win games. So again, the Giants are going to miss his big playmaking ability. But they finally have the quarterback situation figured out. And a quarterback is, in my opinion, the most important position on an entire football team. The Giants can win games without Saquon Barkley because they have Daniel Jones. Their season is not over. I think their best hope, I'll talk about it later and ask Zach. Um, I think their best hope is to go 8-8. Eight and eight. That'd be a great season for them. I'd like that. They started 1-2. and two. They have a tough schedule ahead. But they have definitely seven games coming up that are highly winnable. And if they can steal another game from a better team, they can do even better. I think the future is bright for the New York Giants. And I love their quarterback, Daniel Jones. All right, uh, let's shift gears to Teddy Bridgewater. I'm going to drink some water first. My mouth is, it's, I've been talking for a long time. I just realized like this episode is not short. <laughs> I, I know I said that at the top, but it really is a long, long episode of Strong Opinion Sports. It's a little bit daunting as the hours go by. You go, man, like 
you know, we're going to get, we're, we're, we just got around the first hour. By the third, you know, the second one, I'm be like, oh my gosh, it's going on forever and ever and ever. <clears throat> Let's jump in. Last week, Teddy Bridgewater started at quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. And, uh, you know, the Saints won 33-27. to They beat the Seattle Seahawks. And while watching film for about three-fourths of this game, I was really unimpressed and, and just kind of bored watching Teddy Bridgewater. It took a long time before I finally saw the bigger picture of this game for him. At one point, I even wrote down in my notes, I said, you know, did Teddy Bridgewater win the game for the Saints or did the Saints win the game and Teddy Bridgewater just happened to be playing quarterback for them? Um, I watched this game, and first of all, the Saints had a long touchdown on a punt. They also had a touchdown on defense. So I, I wondered, you know, when you look at Teddy Bridgewater's stats, you look at the picture on paper of what happened. He was 19 for 27 passing. That's a 70% completion percentage. He had 177 yards passing, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. But then you go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, his leading receiver was running back Alvin Kamara. <laughs> the running back caught nine of Bridgewater's 19 completions for 92 yards. And one of Teddy Bridgewater's touchdown passes came on a screen pass where he threw to Alvin Kamara, and Alvin Kamara basically did all the work and ran into the end zone. 29 yards. He broke some tackles. It was really impressive. And so when you look at things that way, it's really easy to be skeptical of Teddy Bridgewater. He threw short passes all day. And I'll be honest, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for him to throw a big throw downfield and wow me, and it just never happened. The closest thing we got to Teddy Bridgewater making a big throw downfield was on a third and three. He threw a great back shoulder fade down the left sideline, and Jared Cook dropped it. It was a rail fade. He got wide down the left sideline. Great throw, incompletion. Jared Cook couldn't hang on. So what I'm left with is a performance that I feel really good about, even if I still have a couple questions left to be answered by Teddy. Now, the one time Teddy completed a pass farther downfield, Michael Thomas was wide open. And in fact, it really wasn't a great throw. It's really a really tough catch. So I still have no idea how Teddy Bridgewater will do when he's forced to make big throws downfield into tight windows. I don't. Can he do that? No idea. I haven't seen it in a long... In, I don't think I've ever seen it. But what I did see from Teddy was really, really encouraging, and you can't take away from that. He made great decisions all game long. He consistently threw the ball into the right spot, and uh, you know that's something you just can't take away from. You have to feel good about that. Wow. Teddy Bridgewater made great decisions. I want to discuss two plays. Uh, the first one is a third and five before halftime. The Saints went with five wide receivers. And for some reason, very stupidly, the Seattle Seahawks decided to play man coverage. <laughs> and what this did was create a very easy solution and uh, answer for Teddy Bridgewater. What should I do next? He threw a slant to Michael Thomas to convert for a first down. And I want to ask, why would you play Michael Thomas? in man-to-man coverage on third and five with no help. I have, I have no idea why you would do that. Michael Thomas is not only the best receiver on the Saints, he's one of the best in the entire NFL. In fact, he's the highest-paid receiver in the entire NFL. Teddy simplified the game. He said, oh, hey, I got a great matchup on the left. I'm going to throw the slant 
The Saints get a first down, and later on that drive, they got a touchdown. Score one for Teddy. That's a great decision. Way to just do your job and put the ball in the right spot. The second decision is on a third and 13. And at first, when you watch this play, you literally go, so what? Why, why are you showing? You see Teddy Bridgewater throw a short dinky pass on third and 13 and not get the first down. And you go, Zach, why are you showing me this? I don't care. <laughs> on third and 13, Teddy Bridgewater threw a dinky little pass for a nine-yard gain. Nothing special. It's not like the throw got the Saints the first down. But in a way, it did. Those nine yards mattered later in the game. Teddy Bridgewater was disciplined. He took what the defense gave him. He didn't force the throw downfield. And what that did is, first of all, it set up the Saints in a position to kick a 53-yard field goal. So even if even if that's all there was to the story, Teddy Bridgewater did a great job. He gained nine yards, put his team in a position to kick a field goal. Those nine yards mattered. But guess what really happened? On the field goal attempt, the Seahawks got a five-yard penalty. Because it was fourth and four, that gave the sense a whole new set of downs, a complete new down, first down Saints. If Teddy Bridgewater had forced a throw into a tight coverage and thrown an incomplete pass on third and 13, not only would the five-yard penalty have not mattered, they also would not have had a chance to kick a field goal. But that dinky little throw, that, you know, oh, Zach, he's throwing a, five, a nine-yard pass, who cares? What that did is led to a Saints first down and later a Saints touchdown. So yeah, I, I still have questions. I wonder if Teddy Bridgewater can complete passes in a tight window downfield. I haven't seen that. We'll find out in the coming weeks. But last Sunday, over and over and over again, Teddy put the ball in the right spot. There is something to be said for that, for making good decisions and moving the ball downfield. Teddy, he impressed me. He, did it, he made great decisions. I still have some questions. I don't know if he's the future successor yet to Drew Brees. I got to see more for that. But man, he played great on Sunday and left a really good, encouraging feeling in my heart. And I can't wait to watch him in the future. All right. Um, let's talk about the Steelers quarterback. I watched film of Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph in his first start last week against the San Francisco 49ers. I want to be very, very honest. Uh, there is not a clear claim that can be made from watching the film. You know, many of my film analysis videos have, they add up to a conclusion where I make a final claim at the end. I say, you know, Teddy Bridgewater played great, or Josh Rosen is good, but his team sucks, or Daniel Jones is good, or this or that. But, you know, the main point here is that I didn't get enough evidence to suggest that Mason Rudolph is a bad quarterback. And I also didn't get enough evidence to suggest that he's, in fact, a good quarterback. Uh, you know, he's replacing a legend, Ben Roethlisberger. And I wish I could say and give you a clear answer whether, you know, I want to say, you know, he's the next Steelers franchise quarterback. Or, you know, I wish I could say, or he's not the next Steelers franchise quarterback. But I can't make a definitive decision or a definitive, you know, answer. There just wasn't, it wasn't there on Sunday. His game was kind of a mixed bag. He was 14 for 27 passing. Had a 51.9% completion percentage. 174 yards. Two touchdowns. And an interception. He made some good throws. He had a throw into a tight window to Juju Smith-Schuster. That Juju took 65 yards and ran for a long touchdown. Right, That's, that's a good throw. But really, Juju did a lot of the work. And then he had a good long touchdown throw down the left sideline. Which is hard to judge because... 
His receiver beat his man by seven yards. He's pretty much wide open by NFL standards. And it really didn't need to be a perfect pass, although it wasn't a bad one either. Now, the offensive line struggled for the Steelers. Uh, Not only was Mason Rudolph hurried multiple times, he was forced to either check the ball down before he was ready or was forced to run around because he wasn't able to really get time to look downfield and scan the defense. And another thing the offensive line struggled with was they had a hard time getting to their assignments on screen passes. Mason Rudolph also had a couple of in-between throws, throws where they were not in great locations. They weren't perfectly accurate throws, but there were still opportunities for receivers to make some catches. And then he was also laid on a throw down the middle that also sailed high. So like you kind of go, it's a very middling performance, a good throw or two, a couple throws that are like, is that his fault? Is that the receiver's fault? It certainly could have been a better throw, but it also could have been caught. He's just, it's kind of all over the place. And so, you know, I just, we got to wait and see. Now there was an out route on the right side of the field where Richard Sherman baited him into throwing the ball. Sherman was sitting, waiting for the ball and quickly moved to break up the pass when it was thrown. The truth to me is that the jury is still out on Mason Rudolph. I don't know. He's young and I, I'm not going to give up hope on him yet. We just, we got to wait and see. The players around him all had really bad days on Sunday against the 49ers. His receivers and offensive line were not great. And Mason Rudolph himself certainly could have played better. But I will say this, in his post-game interview, he owned his mistakes. And I like that. I respect that. He also threw an interception on a broken play. And it's one of those plays where I think he's trying to do a little bit too much. He saw a guy briefly open, but by the time he threw the ball, the window had closed and the guy was no longer open. So, you know, I, I think he had a lot of moments on Sunday, Mason Rudolph did, that he can learn from. A lot of moments that he, he can look at film and go, you know, this can be a better throw. This can be a faster decision. This could be just a, I'm going to throw the ball away instead. There are a lot of moments like that. So with Mason Rudolph, I think we just have to wait and see. There's not a clear definitive answer here. I hope he gets better. Uh, and maybe he won't. But for me, it's just too early to tell either way. You know, we just got to wait and see what happens. I hope he's the next Steelers franchise quarterback. I like good quarterback play. I like seeing young quarterbacks succeed. But the truth is, from Mason Rudolph's play on Sunday, you just can't tell either way whether he's good or bad. And we just have to wait and see more from him in the future. I'm sorry, but I need more evidence before I can give you a like final, really good statement about Mason Rudolph. All right, guys, we're going to take a short break. When I return, finally, the topic I'm most excited for, the U.S. might be most excited for, too. We're going to talk about the five NFL teams I was wrong about. We'll also talk about a quarterback named Kyle Trask. We'll talk about UCLA football. We'll talk about Jim Harbaugh. We'll talk about Lamar Jackson. And then later down the road, at the end of the show, we'll talk about Derek King. We'll do Ask Zach. And we'll talk about the best storylines for football next week. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. You know, I, I, before I go to break, why do I always say that? I say my name is Zach Schaumler because that's what feels right. Like, that's what a broadcaster would do before they take a break and go to commercial. But also, like, you know who I am. If you're this far into the podcast, you probably know who I am. So I got to maybe, I don't know if I'm going to change it, but I want to point out the, the silliness of me, in fact, pointing out that my name is Zach Schaumler. You know that. I know that. Everybody listening probably knows that. But nonetheless, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. <laughs> All right, we are back. Um, I think up next is going to be 
my favorite segment of this entire podcast. Um, after three weeks of NFL football, I believe there are five teams that I've been wrong about so far this year. And when I say I was wrong, what I mean is when I did my prediction show, I think I got some things wrong when I talked about them. There are two teams that are better than I expected, and there are three teams that are actually worse than I expected. The first team I believe I was wrong about was the Buffalo Bills. God, I got to give the Bills some credit, man. Um, I predicted them to go 6-10 and and go third in their division in the AFC East. And they started 3-0. and They're actually halfway already to the win total I predicted for them. And, uh, you know, they play the Patriots this week, by the way. So I think their undefeated season is going to come to an end right now. But I- I'm still really impressed with the Buffalo Bills. You got to just give them credit. Um, they've now beaten three pretty subpar teams. They beat the Jets, the Bengals, and the Giants, who had Eli Manning at quarterback. But nonetheless, the Bills have built a really solid roster. And, you know, I praise them in my predictions episode for, I, I said that they had, of any team in the NFL this offseason, they added the most substance. They did not add a bunch of star players, but what the Bills brought in was a bunch of solid starting players who can contribute immediately on day one. And I was right to point that out. But what's funny is I pointed that out, that they brought in a bunch of new starters. And what I didn't do is didn't give it enough weight. I should have, you know, really given that more weight when I made my predictions. It's funny how, you know, <laughs> I look back at old Zach in the past. It's just funny to me how making your roster better, huh? It's funny how making your roster better makes you win more games. Silly Zach. I, I was stupid. I was wrong about that. Uh, their defense looks great in Buffalo. Josh Allen's getting better every single day. It just keeps getting a little bit better. So to me, the Bills are a solid team. I think they're... Of all the 3-0 and teams, I think they're the team I believe in the least. I think they're, a, they're not a team that's a Super Bowl contender. But I do think, and I, and I hope that the Bills could be in the running at the end of the year, like week 16 and 17, in the running and in the hunt for a wild card spot. That would be really cool, and I think the Bills are capable of that. Their quarterback's solid. The good defense, I like their head coach. I think their roster's really come together. And so I think the Bills are a team to watch out for this year. They could sneak into the wild card, or at the very least, at the end of the year, be in the hunt and really, really close to that. Look, I know it's weird and kind of uncommon to talk about the things you got wrong, uh, but I, I think it's really important. I'm not perfect. I try to own the things I'm wrong about, be honest about my mistakes. And so, you know, next, I just try to be open. I do. I think it's important. Next, you know, I was, I think, entirely wrong about the AFC North. In my predictions podcast, I had the Browns going 10-6 and six and winning the division. I had the Steelers going 9-7 and seven and a possible wildcard team. And I had the Ravens going 7-9 and nine and finishing third in their division. And man, man, oh man, does it look like I was just wrong about this one. The reality is right now, the Ravens are 2-1. and one. They lead their division. The Browns are 1-2. and two, And the Steelers are 0-3. Oh the Steelers look awful. <laughs> and like I, I know I, I talked about the AFC North and I haven't mentioned the Bengals. The Bengals are not noteworthy. You got them right. I said the Bengals were awful. They're not worth talking about. But, uh, you know, let's start with the Steelers. First of all, their quarterback, Big Ben, got hurt. He's out for the year. That sure made an impact on their team. But Big Ben, even when he was in, not injured, when he was healthy and in the game, the Steelers looked awful. They did not look good. They were making mistakes everywhere. And it's funny, too. You know, I said their roster had a ton of 
They, they lost a lot of talent. I, I made a bunch of points. I just didn't listen to them. I said the Steelers lost a bunch of talent. I said their offensive line is older and their roster is aging. And guess what? Very similar to what I said about the Bills. I was right to make those points, but I didn't give it enough weight. I still believe for some reason when I made my final prediction, ah, well, you know, the Steelers are the Steelers. They'll still be good. No, 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 (laughs) no. The Steelers are a mess. They lack leadership. They're making mistakes at all positions, all over the field, on defense, at receiver, offensive line, at quarterback. Everybody's screwing up. And through the first three weeks, the Steelers have simply not looked like a good football team. They're 0-3, and it's an ugly mess. Now the Browns. Man, uh, I, I look back on my Browns prediction with such, you know, inter- I don't know. I, I picked the Browns to go 10-6, and 6, which looks really, really stupid right now. They're 1-2, and 2, but not only are they not 1-2, and 2, their only win is against the Jets, who did not have Sam Darnold. But also, you know, I got to point out, they got killed by the Titans. They got beat by the Rams. But in my predictions episode about the Browns, I pointed out three things. I said, one, their offensive, offensive line is their biggest issue. I then said that I didn't think the Browns had the emotional maturity to handle the moment. And I also said that their head coach, Freddie Kitchens, could be an issue because he'd never been a head coach before. And it's just funny to me. I pointed out all of the potential flaws for the Cleveland Browns. But I didn't have the guts to stand by them and believe in them. I just said that these might be an issues, but I didn't have the guts to say, no, I really am convicted in believing these are three flaws. Turned out the three things I pointed out were totally right. You know, I said that their offensive line was their biggest problem. Guess what's been a giant problem through the first couple of weeks? Their offensive line. Guess what's also been a problem? Their head coach, Freddie Kitchens, a first-time head coach, is doing all kinds of dumb stuff. He cannot... He's not been able to create a good enough culture in Cleveland. And in fact, last week against the Rams on a fourth and nine, he called a running play. He looks like a mess. He looks like an idiot. I was like, what the heck? That's the worst play call I've ever seen. I think it's actually worse than the Seahawks when they threw the ball on the one yard line in the Super Bowl. I would rather a team do that because at least there's a chance that works. If you run the ball on fourth and nine, there's no chance it's going to work. I couldn't believe it. And look, the number three thing is that I, think, I don't think the Browns have the emotional maturity as a team to handle the spotlight and to handle losing in a big moment. I, I believed that the Browns would win their division, and right now it looks pretty silly. They just look like a mess. I got, we'll talk about it later and ask Zach at the end of the show. I got asked a question about the Browns, and we'll talk about that down the road. I think they have hope. I, like, I believe in their quarterback, Baker Mayfield, but right now, the Browns do not look like a good football team. Finally, it looks like I was most wrong about the Baltimore Ravens. You know, I said they would be third in their division. Right now, that looks idiotic. Um, easily, they are the best team in their division, the AFC North. Now, their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, looks really good. I doubted him before the year started. He's proving me wrong every single time he plays a football game. The other thing is that they added running back Mark Ingram this offseason. He was a huge addition. He's the heart and soul of that Ravens offense. He runs hard. He's leading the way. It's really fun to watch. And, you know, him along with Earl Thomas at safety are two really big additions to the Ravens that are making a big impact for their team. Now, the Ravens just lost to the Chiefs. But what's interesting is they lost and their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, 
played badly, which is a testament to how good their roster is. The Ravens roster is chock full of really good players that are really talented. If their quarterback can have a bad game and they can still just barely lose to one of the best teams in football, the Kansas City Chiefs, how encouraging is that? If Lamar Jackson plays well next time, they beat the Chiefs probably by a lot of points. And so I really got to acknowledge (laughs) I was embarrassingly wrong about the Baltimore Ravens. They're really good. Not only is their quarterback better than I believed, but their roster in general is a really good, really complete roster that's been fun to watch this year. I just was wrong about the Ravens. I can own that. Finally, it looks like I was wrong about the Denver Broncos. In my predictions episode, I said that the Broncos would go 9-7. and seven. I said they would have solid quarterback play and a good defense. And well, uh, they've started 0-3, so they're, they're not playing well. And uh, even more interesting, here's a crazy stat you got to pay attention to with the Broncos. The Broncos are last in the entire NFL in sacks. They have none. None. Through three games, they have zero sacks. To me, that's unbelievable. They have two really good defensive ends, or at least two guys I thought were really good defensive ends with Bradley Chubb and Vaughn Miller. Bradley Chubb, a former fifth round, a former number five overall pick in the NFL draft. Vaughn Miller, I believe at one point he was Super Bowl MVP. He's fantastic. And what's even more frustrating and even more weird to watch with the Denver Broncos is their head coach is Vic Fangio, who was last year the Bears defensive coordinator. He was leading an elite group of guys and had a bunch of great play calls. I thought he could duplicate that. I was like, man, Vic Fangio with Bradley Chubb and Von Miller, he's going to cook up something great. He's going to be a fantastic defensive coordinator. And so far, I've just been completely unimpressed with their defense and, you know, the word even that comes to mind is disappointed. I've been disappointed with how the Broncos have played this year. It's sad and, and frustrating. Now, they've lost to the Bears and the Packers, two good teams, but they also lost to the Raiders and didn't even get a sack on the Raiders who don't have a great offensive line. Just like, man, it is frustrating and disappointing. So it looks like I was wrong to believe in the Broncos. Their quarterback, Joe Flacco, has been very, very marginal and very average, not enough to win games. I thought he'd play a little better than he's been playing. And so just completely, I was wrong about the Denver Broncos. There are two honorable mentions. Um, I said the Bron- that the Redskins, the, I said the Washington Redskins would have a terrible year and that they would totally suck. And by the way, I was right about that. They're 0-3 and they're terrible. But uh, they have scored more points than I thought they would. They've been really competitive in their losses. And so I have to acknowledge they're better than I thought they would be. They still suck. They're still not going to have a good year. But hey, they're a better 0-3 than I thought they would be. <laughs> and then, you know, I also thought that the new Buccaneers head coach, Bruce Arians, would make their quarterback, Jameis Winston, better. And uh, nah, not so far. It looks like not only do the Buccaneers not trust their quarterback to throw the ball very much, he's also just not been that great. He had, he had an okay game last week against the Giants, but in general... Jameis Winston has not made the great strides I thought he would, and the coach is not making the big impact I thought he would have on Jameis Winston. So I have to ask, you know, those are the teams I thought I was wrong about. Are there teams you think I was wrong about and want to tell me? Please do. Was I wrong about your favorite team? Maybe you're mad at me. Please let me know. I would like to know. Are there teams you think I was wrong about 
that I didn't mention in the segment, hey, let me know. I'd love to hear it. All right, I'm going to shift gears now to a really cool story. There's a quarterback named Kyle Trask who started last Saturday for the University of Florida. Here's the weird part. This was his first start in seven years. He hasn't started a football game as quarterback since his freshman year of high school. Now, he went to Manville High School in Texas, and that the problem was that's also where De'Eric King went. De'Eric King is, the, is a quarterback at Houston right now. They were in the same grade, and King is a crazy good athlete who could and still can run all over the field making all kinds of crazy highlight plays. Makes a bunch of people look silly. And so, of course, you know, Manville High School played Derek King as their starting quarterback. However, even though Kyle Trask was the backup, his coach liked him, wanted to get him reps. He got a lot of plays, had a good enough, you know, got enough plays where he could build a pretty solid highlight reel and send it off to colleges. And that earned him a scholarship to Florida. So, when Kyle Trask started his first game in seven years, here's what happened. Really, really cool. Kind of came out of nowhere. A guy I've never heard of. Not only did he win the game, his team Florida beat Tennessee 34-3. to and, and by the way, that's not that much of an accomplishment. Tennessee is awful. But Trask had a pretty good stat line. He was 20 for 28 passing. Had a, you know, he completed 71% of his passes, had 293 yards, two touchdowns. He did have three turnovers. He had two fumble, or had a fumble and two interceptions. And now look, I'll, I'll be honest. I wish I could say Kyle Trask is the best quarterback. Uh, I wish I could just ring his praises. I can't, right? He was very much fine. He was good enough. He had guys wide open. He had nothing but a bunch of time to throw. But I will say this, to his credit, despite the wobbly passes he threw over the middle and the fact that he wasn't, super amazing, he still succeeded. And that's better than anybody expected from him. And I just thought it was cool. A guy who hasn't started in seven years, who came out of nowhere, comes in, plays pretty well, and beats the crap out of Tennessee. That's awesome. I also got to acknowledge that, you know, I think he's going to succeed again next week. Florida plays Towson on Saturday, and there's a good chance they win that game by quite a bit. So Kyle Trask, man, came out of nowhere, made some good decisions, had some good throws, um, and, and really just impressed me and surprised me with a cool story of a guy who hasn't played and hasn't st- hasn't start. He's played who hasn't started a game at quarterback in seven years since his freshman year in high school. That to me is really really cool. I'm happy for Kyle Trask. I'm gonna take drink some water, and then we're gonna talk about UCLA football. Mm. Man, right. We're so long into this show. We have way more to go, too. We're not even close to done. Um, If you ask me, the entire UCLA football program has hope for the first time in a long, long time. And it's all thanks to their quarterback, their sophomore quarterback, Dorian Thompson Ramos or Thompson Robinson or a guy that I said Ramos. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know his name. It's Dorian Thompson Robinson. He's fantastic. We'll call him DTR. That's what I usually call him offhand. Um, Last week, it's possible that the best college football game of the entire year was played in Pullman, Washington between UCLA and Washington State. I was watching it. It was awesome. Most of you guys were asleep. Don't even pretend you were watching. It was a late Saturday night game. Man, it was a wild 
fun, high and low emotional event that UCLA won the game 67 to 63. They rallied from down 32 points to bring themselves back into position. They, you know, the Washington State and UCLA traded blows back and forth all throughout the end of the fourth quarter. And eventually, UCLA found themselves on top. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And it was really the spark that UCLA needed. You know, the UCLA started their year 0-3. They lost to Cincinnati. They lost to San Diego State. And then they got obliterated by Oklahoma. It was a bad, ugly start. And at 0-3, a lot of people, myself included, were beginning to wonder if uh, Chip Kelly, the UCLA head coach, was going to last very much longer. He's only in his second year, but last year he went 3-9. and This year had an 0-3 start, played pretty bad. And uh, I've had a lot of doubts about Chip Kelly this entire time, wondering whether or not he could actually re, you know, completely build a program from the ground up. He once coached at the University of Oregon during a period of fantastic, fantastic greatness. And what he did at Oregon was he inherited a solid program and took a solid foundation and then elevated it to an elite status. And that's impressive, right? That's cool. But what he's never done in college is taken a bad, crappy program and then taken them from bad and crappy and elevated them to an elite status. He's never done that. And I was beginning to wonder and still kind of have some doubts whether or not he can actually make that happen. Because at UCLA, he was in a different scenario. He inherited a really crappy, really awful program that was in bad shape. He's, he's got to do a lot of work if he's going to turn that program around. But for the first time since Chip Kelly got to UCLA, I think there's a chance he can succeed. I have a feeling in my heart and I go, you know what? I look at Chip Kelly and I go, you might be able to make it happen. You might be able to make this work. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, the you know, UCLA has a bunch of really hard things to overcome. The first thing is that, you know, they are always going to be a tough program to build up. No offense to UCLA. I'm sorry to fans listening. I hope you don't get offended. But in Los Angeles, UCLA is the little brother to USC. In a city with two teams, there's always one program or one franchise that's way cooler and, and more has more cachet, right? In New York, I'm sorry, Jets fans, but the Jets are the little brother to the New York Giants. And in the Bay Area, the Oakland A's are the little brother to the San Francisco Giants. In an area that has multiple teams, one of them is always cooler, has a better following, they're a better brand with more history behind them. For example, the Lakers have more history and are the cooler brand, even though I think the Clippers in LA might be actually a better basketball team right now. The Chicago Cubs are cooler than the Chicago White Sox. Because of history and cachet, in Los Angeles... USC is the cooler, better brand in that city. They're better than UCLA. They're the cooler brand. I mean, no offense, it's just being honest. So it's always going to be a tough uproad, uphill battle for UCLA. But I, I'm really excited for them because I think they finally have a chance to climb that mountain and become a great football program. In the second half of the Washington State game, Dorian Thompson Robinson, the quarterback for UCLA, something clicked in him. He's been very average so far throughout his entire career. You know, he played a number of games in 2018. It was kind of ugly. And at the start of 2019, it just wasn't great. I kept waiting. 
and it hasn't been happening for Dorian Thompson Robinson. But finally, in the second half last week, he came alive. Something clicked, something snapped. And the highly touted, highly recruited, really big, you know, much hyped up, much anticipated quarterback, DTR finally settled in. In total, he had seven touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, five touchdowns throwing. He threw for 507 yards, a 65% completion percentage. He also did have an interception. And he just looked lights out, running all over the place, played with confidence, played with poise, running great, making all kinds of incredible throws. And for the first time, I finally had a belief and a glimmer of hope that, oh, wow. Maybe UCLA football can make this work. Maybe Chip Kelly at UCLA can succeed. Here's the thing. Chip Kelly with a really good quarterback is a totally different story than Chip Kelly with a bad program and no quarterback. Especially since DTR is only a sophomore. That means that Chip Kelly has time to grow and turn DTR into a special, special quarterback. I have no idea... If Chip Kelly can build a program from scratch. I don't I don't know. Can he actually take a program that's awful and turn them into an elite college football program? I don't know. But I do believe that with a special quarterback, Chip Kelly can win a lot of games. And that is what we're looking at right now. If DTR plays the rest of the year the way he did against Washington State, UCLA's fortunes and their tide has turned they have a chance to become an elite college football program because of their head coach, who's a great play caller. Say what you want about him. He's an offensive genius. And he might finally have a quarterback worthy of his play calls who can execute at a high level and make all kinds of great plays. Watch UCLA football the rest of this year. I'm curious to watch whether DTR, Dorian Thompson Robinson, continues to develop and plays well. Or was that game against Wazoo just a fluke and is going to fall back to, from grace and be the way he was the rest of the year. Did he? Did something click in him? Did he become a different quarterback and finally figure things out? Or is he just going to go back to normal? And was last Saturday an anomaly? And if last Saturday was an anomaly, then I think UCLA is in trouble, and their head coach could eventually get fired. Okay, uh, one more thing. I don't. I want to add more fire to the flame. There are rumors that Urban Meyer could go to USC, University of Southern California, and become their head coach. And uh, he's, of course, a legendary head coach. He's won multiple national championships. And if uh, Urban Meyer does indeed go to USC, that would be wild. My honest hope as a guy who loves telling stories and loves football is for both USC and UCLA to be very good. Because I want the USC-UCLA game that's played every year to become a high-stakes, intense, meaningful rivalry where winning and losing has a big impact on all kinds of stuff down the road in the Pac-12 and in the playoff picture and all kinds of stuff. That'd be fun. I want USC-UCLA to be my high stakes, interesting, chaotic, emotional rivalry. It's already a big rivalry, but it has very little national impact. I would love it if USC and UCLA both became really good football programs and then their game became a big deal of great importance every single year. That's what I want. That's what I'm rooting for because it would be really, really fun to see that rivalry reignited as a high-stakes, important rivalry throughout college football. All right. Um, 
Oh, boy. Uh, last Saturday, Michigan lost to Wisconsin. They lost 35-14, to 14, and everybody freaked out. Michigan got killed, and then everybody began calling for Jim Harbaugh, Michigan's head coach, for be, to be fired. Jim Harbaugh's terrible, this and that, and ah, all kinds of noise. How could this happen? And people panicked and freaked out. And I remained calm. I was like, okay. You know, the loss actually didn't even surprise me. Jim Harbaugh was hired at Michigan. And for some reason, everybody's expectations skyrocketed. In fact, I won't say for no reason. I get why. People are paying him a ton of money. The expectation was Jim Harbaugh's coming home. He's going to lift our, our program and lead us to excellence and make us an elite college football program. People were like, oh, you know, this is the coach who led the 49ers to a Super Bowl. This is the coach who turned around Stanford football. If he could turn around Stanford, of course he could do it at Michigan. And everybody in Michigan expects their college football team to compete for national championships. And I get it, man. I understand. Michigan wants to win it all. If Michigan wants to win national championships, though, here's the problem. They have the wrong head coach. They're expecting way too much of him. Uh, uh, I have never believed Jim Harbaugh was going to make Michigan a national championship team a habit. We've seen repeatedly what he is. And Michigan is foolish to expect a national championship from him. I make a video like this every single year. Every year I go... This is what Jim Harbaugh is because every single year this happens. Michigan loses a big game. It surprises everybody. They're all mad. How could Jim Harbaugh lose this game? I feel bad for Michigan football fans because they have unrealistic expectations. Here's what Jim Harbaugh does. Every single year, he wins 10 games. 10, 1-0. His last year at Stanford, he won 12 His first two years at Michigan in a row, 2015 and 2016, he won 10 games. By the way, he did that without his own recruits. In 2017, had a bad year, he won eight games. And then last year again, he won, guess what, 10 games. On average, how many games did Jim Harbaugh normally win? 10 every year. That's what he does. And I get it. If Michigan feels like that's not good enough for them, I understand. Jim Harbaugh, you got to understand who he is. He's been telling us for years. We've seen all kinds of examples on his resume. Here's what Jim Harbaugh is. He's not. N-O-T. He is not an elite college football coach. He's not. He's very good. Not quite elite. If you want an elite college football coach, you need Dabo Sweeney, Urban Meyer, or Nick Saban. Those guys are elite quarter, elite head coaches who consistently win national championships. That's not who Jim Harbaugh is. He never has been. Jim Harbaugh is above average. Absolutely. He consistently wins 10 games a year. I know a lot of programs that would love to win 10 games every single year. Have that taken care of. Our our football program's going to be good and nationally relevant every single year. For a lot of programs, that would be enough. For Michigan, it's not. I respect you. I understand. I get it. 
I understand why Michigan's mad. They want to take the next step as a program. They thought that's what hiring Jim Harbaugh would do for them. And it hasn't. So if Michigan wants an elite head football coach to win championships, they need to hire, they need to, excuse me, they need to fire, get rid of Jim Harbaugh. That's not what he is. He's not elite. He never has been. Who he is has always been on display every single year at Michigan. He loses a big game. It shocks everybody, surprises everybody. And he wins about 10 games and takes his team to a bowl game. That's what he does. That is year in and year out. That is exactly who Jim Harbaugh is. Why would things suddenly change? Here's what he does. He takes his team to a bowl game. He usually loses the bowl game. But guess what? Because your team went to a bowl game, your program makes a lot more money. A lot of programs in college football would be very happy with Jim Harbaugh as their head coach. I'm sure some NFL teams would too. I understand if that's what Michigan wants. Michigan doesn't want to settle for 10 wins. Michigan wants to win 12. They want to go undefeated, make it to the college football playoff, try to win a national championship. And I have bad news for you. Michigan, if that's what you want, you have the wrong head coach in place. Jim Harbaugh is not elite. He's very good, wins 10 games a year, loses a bowl game. That's what he does every single year. And he always has a loss that surprises everybody. But if you expect him to suddenly become an elite coach tomorrow, you have unrealistic expectations. And it's just not going to happen. Michigan, if you want more, you got to fire Jim Harbaugh. But also understand, if you fire Jim Harbaugh, you might not get better. Because there's not a lot of elite college football coaches just walking around the world. There's about three. Urban Meyer, Davos Sweeney, and Nick Saban. That's about it. Other than that, looks like you're in trouble. So, you know, Michigan fans can get mad all they want. But I think they actually have unrealistic expectations of who Jim Harbaugh is. That is not what he is as a coach. He can be mad, and if you're mad, stop paying him so much money. Stop supporting your team until they get rid of him. Okay, uh, let's talk about, before we go to break, I want to talk about Lamar Jackson very briefly. During week three of the NFL season, the Ravens lost to the Chiefs 33-28. to And to me, this was the one of the bigger tests of the year for the Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson. I previously highlighted three important games for him. Week three at Kansas City, week nine against the Patriots, and week 12, the Ravens against the Rams. Three games against tough opponents. And, uh, well, he had his first test against the Kansas City Chiefs, and um, it wasn't great. It was not, it was a little bit disappointing, I'll be honest. Now, as I promised, I said I would. I, I will hold to this. I'm going to wait until the after the Rams game before I'm going to pass a final judgment on Lamar Jackson. You know, uh, week three was subpar for him. He had a, a, a pretty average game. Against the Chiefs, he was 22 for 43 passing. That's only a 51% completion percentage. He had 267 yards passing, no touchdowns, also no interceptions. But he did also run for a touchdown. I'll be honest. Um, in some ways I was discouraged watching that game. And in some ways I was quite encouraged. Uh, number one is that the Ravens, I was encouraged in this way. The Ravens played fantastic. Now their quarterback played bad and they barely lost to one of the best teams in the entire NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs in Kansas City. They ran for over 200 yards. Their defense played great. 
and their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, left a lot to be desired. To me, that's encouraging because what that means is you're really close. You know, if your quarterback plays a little better, you can win that game. And if your quarterback plays great, you win that game by a lot. The Ravens have a great roster. They're in a good position to win a lot of games this year. But here's why it was a little bit disappointing. It was painful to watch Lamar Jackson miss deep balls over and over and over again. He had guys open deep downfield and he kept overthrowing them. And, uh, you know, when he needed to complete passes into tight windows, frankly, he, he missed. He just, Lamar Jackson had opportunities to make high-level throws downfield. And he didn't. He didn't make it happen. And it was disappointing because I, I hoped for better. I talked about this last week. I wanted better from Lamar Jackson, and uh, we didn't get it. But here's the good news. Again, right, the team played great. And even with Lamar Jackson having a bad game, they still almost beat the Chiefs. So if, if he improves, they're going to do well. But you got to be patient with Lamar Jackson. His team is good. He's in a good position. And that was test one of three. You don't fail after the first test. Lamar Jackson has two more opportunities against the Patriots and the Rams, not to mention the rest of the year, to keep improving every week and keep getting a little better, a little better, a little better. Lamar Jackson is way better than he was last year. Way, way better, much improved. And I think he can keep improving incrementally every single week. And so everyone's going to rush to judgment to say Lamar Jackson played bad against the Chiefs. Year is over. He's terrible. He didn't improve as much as we thought. Give the guy a little bit of time. It's only year two. He made a big jump last offseason. He could probably do it again next offseason. Not to mention, it's only week three. He could be a better quarterback week 12 than he is right now. So please, I ask you, I am very skeptical about Lamar Jackson. He was very disappointing to watch against the Chiefs last Sunday. But give him a little bit of patience. Give him a little bit of time. Because right now, he's been actually kind of encouraging. There's good stuff he's done. He can play better. I think he can. I hope he does. He might not, but I think he can get better every single week. So the jury's still out on Lamar Jackson. I'm not ready to give up on him, and I'm also really not ready to anoint him because he was disappointing on Sunday. But let's wait and see what happens with Lamar Jackson throughout the rest of the year before everybody has all these hot takes that Lamar Jackson suddenly can't even throw a football. One week people love him, the next week he's terrible. It's like, can we just wait and see and let things develop rather than having all these... I hate the term hot takes. It's really annoying. And what people in the media do is they come up with something they can say that they know will make people angry, and then they say it hoping for a reaction. I don't want to be that guy. Lamar Jackson was disappointing last Sunday. Let's just be honest about it. But there's also still time for him to get better and change our opinion of him later this year. So let's just wait and see what happens with Lamar throughout the course of this year. Guys, my name is Jack Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we have a gigantic, we have, I think, 11 Ask Zach questions. We have a really weird story about a quarterback named De'Eric King. And then we have storylines for next week in the NFL. A bunch of good stuff coming up. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Uh, we have now entered the final grouping of topics uh, for Strong Opinion Sports today. Gosh, my voice is kind of dying. We're Really, it's a long episode. I told you it would be. Um, I want to start, though, something I have never seen before in my entire life is happening right now in college football. 
And it's, it's bizarre. It's weird. I'm not going to give you some crazy stats or something like, no, it's straight up. I've never seen this happen. De'Eric King, the starting quarterback at the University of Houston, is totally healthy. And he's also absolutely unshakable as the starting quarterback at his college. Nobody's taking his job. He's not in trouble. He's not getting beat out. He's not a risk. He's the guy. And he's healthy. And yet it has been announced that he is redshirting this year. And he's not playing at all the rest of this season. He's redshirting. He's saving year of eligibility. And finishing his degree at Houston. It's very, very bizarre. He's a, he's a really good quarterback. He's thrown for 50 touchdowns in his career. He's rushed for 28 more. And here is the statement he made uh, at a press conference the other day. He said, After carefully thinking through this process with my family and Coach Holgerson, I've decided the opportunity to redshirt this season gives me the best chance to develop as a player, earn my degree, and set me up for the best success in the future. He also said, I'm looking forward to being a part of the success of this program moving forward. He's, he's telling everybody, I'm redshirting, I'm going to get my degree, but I'm also going to stay and be a part of University of Houston football. And so it's very weird to me. This doesn't add up. Now, let's consider a couple of options. To be the devil's advocate, let's talk about, okay, what if he actually does stay at Houston? You could argue it, it's possible that you know his team is 1-3, uh, he's got a new head coach. He doesn't know the system very well. And academics clearly are important to him. He wants to get his degree. He's telling people, I want to get my degree. And maybe he's in his senior year. The classes are a little bit harder. He's like, you know, the best thing for me, honestly, would be to finish my degree. We're having a bad year anyways. I'll learn the, the, the system better. Next year, I'll have my degree. I can take a lighter class load. And guess what I can do? I'll know the system better. We'll have a fresh start. We won't be one and three. We'll have a better, a fresh start to have a good season next year. It's there's a slim chance that he actually is considering staying at the University of Houston and trying to give himself a better position and a better chance to succeed next year. And he doesn't want to waste his senior year going one and three and then having a bad year the rest of the year with hard classes and stressed and all this stuff. It's there's a possibility that that's what he's thinking and that he truly does plan to stay at Houston. But man, I got to call bull crap. There's no way. I do not believe that De'Eric King is actually planning to stay at the University of Houston long term. I just don't buy it. Of course, he has to say he's planning to stay. I know he said that. People will comment, well, he said he's going to stay. Of course, he has to say that. He has to stay so he can earn his degree. So he has to convince people at Houston, hey, uh, I'm going to be here. I'm taking a weird decision. Yes, make up all this crap. Who knows? Maybe his grades are struggling. Who knows what's going on? But he has, of course, he has to stay. He has to tell people he's planning to stay because then he can stay on scholarship and get his degree. But once De'Eric King has his degree, then he can graduate, transfer wherever he wants, and be immediately eligible to play day one wherever he goes. Getting his degree would allow him to be a graduate transfer and go anywhere he wants. Of course he has to tell people he's staying. That's the only way he can get his degree and make it work. Personally, I love what De'Eric King is doing. Whether he's planning to stay or not, what he's doing is he is... Using the system to his advantage. 
That's that's the word that comes to mind with me. De'Ara King doesn't owe Houston anything. And he really also doesn't owe the NCAA anything. And what's cool to me is the world is changing. And, and culture with athletes is slowly changing over the course of this this year and, and my lifetime. Things are just really, really taking a turn towards options and opportunities for athletes. Again, what Derek King is doing is a brilliant way to use the system to his advantage and to his benefit. Kids now have more information than ever before with the internet, with cell phones. People are now more aware of their options. So whether he's planning to stay or leave, clearly he's found an option that's better for him and it's an outside-the-box thought that no one's really done before. And to me, that's really, really cool. What's interesting is the big divide between older generations and younger generations. Younger generations look around and go, I don't need to put up with nonsense anymore. I don't. And older generations will get mad when you say that and go, well, Zach, or whatever it is, you got to remember, you need to struggle. And, and yes, uh, look, I, I lived in a mobile home my life. My brother, dad, I've been through a lot of struggling. A lot of people have been through struggling. I'm sure De'Ara King's been through struggling. People will say, you should stay at the University of Houston. You should do this because you're going to learn something and all this stuff. And that's great. But Derek King has a plan clearly. And he doesn't want to put up with nonsense anymore. Maybe he doesn't like his head coach. Maybe he wants to play at a better program that can actually win games. Who knows what's going on? But clearly Derek King has a plan. And I don't know that we really know his plan. He might be telling us one thing. I don't think he's really telling us honestly what he's got planned. But whatever he's doing, it's a wild, outside-the-box way of solving a problem. And I love it. And clearly, by the way, he's committed to getting a degree. So that's the NCAA should be really happy with that. I don't know what he's going to do. My guess is he's planning to leave. Go to a better program. Be the star somewhere at a big school. Like a bigger school. I know Houston's a big school. But maybe a a top-level Power 5 conference. Maybe he just doesn't like his coach. Who knows? I'm speculating. Maybe he loves Dana Holgerson. Maybe he's planning to stay and he wants to just finish his degree and then have an easier class load so he can focus on football next year. Who knows? But the truth is nobody does. Nobody has any idea other than his family and him. Nobody knows what's going on. So I'm just going to follow this story and see how it progresses because I'm really curious. I've never seen a guy totally healthy, not in danger of losing his job, decide to suddenly redshirt and take the year off. Never happened. A guy who clearly loves football. So... No one, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm excited to see what does indeed come to fruition for De'Aaron King. All right, uh, it's time for Ask Zach. This segment is the way I end every single one of my podcasts. Uh, people who support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Zach Shomler. It's a dollar a month. You can give me more money if you want. Um, it would really help me. I'm trying to get my own apartment. It would help me pay my bills. But a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions to me through Patreon. I only accept questions on Patreon through the Patreon DM services, or you can post on Patreon's posts if you're a subscriber there. And I will not guarantee to read your show, read, well, to read your question on the show if if you support me on Patreon. But what I will do is look at it with my eyeballs. I'll give it a look, and then I consider all the questions entered in every week, and then pick the best couple to read on the show. Uh, in this segment, I call Ask Zach. So, today we have one, two, three, 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven questions for Ask Zach. I love them all. I really, I was very impressed with the questions people brought in. And uh, I want to start with, actually, you know, before we start with the first question, I want to just say thank you to Alex. Alex, you know who you are. You sent me a very kind message. I sent you a message, but I also just want to say publicly, Alex, I really appreciate you. You're awesome. And I just want to shout out to you on the show because you're a big supporter of mine and I just appreciate you a lot. So Tyler writes in, Tyler says, hey, Zach, love the podcast. Keep up the amazing work. I have a question, though, for the Ask Zach (laughs) for the segment. Sweet. He says, what three no teams do you believe are legit contenders and what teams do you think are flukes? So Tyler, um, there are seven undefeated NFL teams. Th- seven teams are 3-0. The Bills, the Cowboys, the Packers, the Chiefs, the Packers, the 49ers, and the Rams. And you left the, the term, you know, who is a legit contender? That's kind of up for interpretation. Here's how I'm going to interpret that. I say legit contender means they have a chance to win a Super Bowl. I think five of the teams that are 3-0 and have a legit chance to win a Super Bowl this year. The Cowboys, the Packers, the Patriots, the Chiefs, and the Rams. All five have, and to different levels, a combination of coach, quarterback, defense, and offensive line that is capable of winning a Super Bowl. For example, the Patriots are, have a way better head coach and a better quarterback, but a weaker offensive line and a good defense. And the Cowboys have a coach I don't really believe in is weaker, but a great quarterback, a great offensive line, and a great defense, right? So to all degree, varying degrees, they have the four ingredients I think you need to win a Super Bowl. Again, the five teams are the Cowboys, the Packers, the Patriots, the Chiefs, and the Rams. Of the teams that are undefeated that you brought up and asked me to talk about, those are the five that I think are contenders. Now, the Bills and the 49ers are also undefeated. They're also 3-0. And those are not flukes, right? They are playing pretty well. They are good teams. And of all the average teams in the NFL, I think the Bills and the 49ers are kind of the, the top level of the average teams. They're the upper middle, would you have? Um, you know, the Bills and the 49ers both have good rosters, coaches I like. Now, the questions for both of those teams are, you know, the quarterback. The Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, is a second-year quarterback. He's still young and pretty raw. I don't think he has a chance to win a Super Bowl. No matter how good his team is, I don't think he's quite ready. And the 49ers quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, is a guy I just don't trust it. He's had a good game. He's had a couple bad games. He's just kind of all over the place. And I really need to see a lot better from him down the road and more consistently better in order for me to believe in Jimmy Garoppolo. He's fine, but I, I will say I love the 49ers roster. And I'm curious if their quarterback can step it up and, and win games. So those are the seven teams that are undefeated. Five of them are legit contenders, as Tyler would ask. CJ wrote in and said, <laughs> he said, Hey, Zach, I'm a huge fan of the show and was wondering if you have considered making merch for the show. Uh, CJ, yes. I plan on making merchandise, T-shirts, and maybe pants for the show. Um, Now, my life right now is in total chaos. I live in my friend's basement. I left my college. I'm trying to get my own place. There's a bunch of stuff going on that is very – Just there's a lot going on. I'm pretty stressed. I'm trying to just make content as best I can. And once I get settled and kind of get on my feet, then merch will come. I really badly, I think I could make money actually selling t-shirts. I think it'd be really cool. And, but I don't want to just do it for the money. There's, it's really important to me to not rush it and do it the right way. Um, my goal with merchandise, if I'm going to sell something, I want to do it right. I want to make a good product, make quality stuff with good material that I would wear. Cause my goal is to make a bunch of t-shirts and then only wear my t-shirts that I sell. Cause here's what I love doing. I love waking up in the morning. 
And you, you walk over to your little your dresser, you open the drawer and you go, and most people look at their dresser and go, hmm, what am I going to wear today? I hate that. I hate making the decision, what am I going to wear today? There's a reason I wear the same shirt on the podcast every single day. My goal is to wake up and go, hey, I have five shirts. They're all the same. They're all strong opinion sports shirts. And I, no one can ever give me crap for wearing a shirt that's my company because guess what? My company, I do whatever I want. So my goal is to make shirts that I think are high quality that I want to wear around every single day. So I'm still figuring that out. But when I have shirts and merchandise, I will definitely tell you guys. I think it'd be cool to make hats and I think sweatpants would be cool, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but for now, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but I am working on it. And I promise you this, right? The only thing I promise with Strong Opinion Sports always is that I will make quality. I, I don't, you know, I, I want to always promise my content will be the very best content it can be. And that includes my merchandise. I want to make high quality, really good shirts that I would wear all the time that are worth selling to you guys. CJ, thank you for your question. Wyatt writes in and Wyatt says, Hey, Zach, wondering what matchups you're interested in for the MLB playoffs and what storylines you're excited to watch for this coming NBA season. So what I did is, first of all, number one, I absolutely love the MLB playoffs. I love baseball. Play, playoff baseball when it matters is one of my favorite things in the world to watch. It's truly special. When you know there's tension and I'm on the edge of my seat going, is he going to hit that? There's a runner on second and I don't know. A base hit scores the runner and that's the tying run. It's just so fun and interesting. So for me, there are a couple, couple teams on a collision course in Major League Baseball. The number one is in the American League is the Yankees and the Astros. At some point, they're going to play each other. And you bet, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to watch. I'm going to love every minute of it. I believe the Astros are going to win, but I think Yankees-Astros would be a great series. Can't wait to watch. Then the winner between the Astros and the Yankees, one of those two teams, I believe, is going to go to the World Series and end up playing the LA Dodgers. And man, that would be a blast. Dodgers, Astros, or Dodgers, Yankees. Probably Dodgers, Yankees is better for TV viewership because two great cities and you know, two, uh, two big giant markets and two cities with a giant fan base. Dodgers, Yankees would be really cool. But I just want good baseball. I want good drama. That's what playoff baseball is. Regular baseball is kind of boring, I'll be honest. In July, don't care. When baseball matters in the playoffs, I am all in. I love it because baseball, when it matters, there's nothing like it. Now, how about the NBA? I came up with 10 storylines to watch in the NBA this season that excite me. And even if you're not an NBA fan, I think you should listen to this because there are 10 storylines you can learn to follow that are really cool. Number one, my, my number one storyline is the Lakers. They have LeBron James. They have Anthony Davis. The question is, can they build something in LA? I'm curious to watch. Now, the Brooklyn Nets are another team I want to watch. They have Kyrie Irving. And eventually, they're going to have Kevin Durant. And there will be stress and weird questions on whose team is it? Is it Kyrie's team? Is it Kevin Durant's team? That's one weird stress that's going to happen. The other question I have with the, the Brooklyn Nets is, how long will it be before irrational New York fans start asking, where's Kevin Durant? They're, they're going to, they're, New York fans are inherently irrational. They're going to start chanting and wondering, we want Kevin Durant. And it's like, he tore his Achilles, is injured. He can come. But for some reason, that's what's going to happen. And so I can't wait for that chaos. It's going to be fun. The third storyline I'm excited for is the Boston Celtics. They replaced Kyrie Irving with Kemba Walker. And I just wonder, is Kemba Walker a better fit at point guard for the Boston Celtics? I think so. It'll be fun to find out. My fourth thing is Zion with the New Orleans Pelicans. 
uh, the New Orleans Pelicans. Zion Williamson. Is he even ready to make an impact in the NBA? Is he even ready? He's a young kid. He's a rookie. Is he in shape? Oh, I have a lot of questions. I'm just excited to watch. It's going to be a fun experiment. How will he play? I don't know. Uh, Trey Young. <laughs> He's entering his second year with the Atlanta Hawks. I'm fascinated with him. People say he might be the next Steph Curry. I don't really believe that. But, hey, we'll find out. Will he develop or not? I don't know. But I'm, I'm going to pay attention to Trey Young. More than other, I know there's better rookies. You know, Luka Doncic's fantastic. But Trey Young is the guy I have my eye on that I'm curious to watch. And I wonder if he develops as, an, as a basketball player. Number six, I have my eye on the Rockets. They have James Harden. They just brought in Russell Westbrook. Sounds like a train wreck. Two ball hogs that want, a ball, want the ball all the time. Will it work? I have no idea. It'll be fun to find out. The Clippers, my question for the Clippers is, can they dominate Los Angeles with Kawhi Leonard? The 76ers have a bunch of expectations in Philadelphia, but my question is, can they deliver? That's what I want to see from the Philadelphia 76ers. Can they deliver on all the expectations people are throwing their way? How about the Golden State Warriors? I think they're still really good. They lost Kevin Durant. Clay Thompson is hurt. You know, he tore his ACL, he's out. He's, he'll be back someday, don't know when, but eventually. But they still have Steph Curry, and they also added D'Angelo Russell. I'm excited to watch D'Angelo Russell play with Steph Curry and see what kind of match they could be. And, you know, I, I just think they could actually work pretty well. We'll find out. Steph Curry is amazing. D'Angelo Russell could progress and get better. Let's watch the Warriors see what they become, especially in a Western Conference now in the NBA where there's a lot more parity and every team has a chance. That actually helps the Warriors because every team got a little worse, which means that they also can hang around now that they got worse. My final question is, can Giannis take the Milwaukee Bucks farther than he ever has before? He won MVP. He's fantastic. And we're not going to know the answer to this question until the end of the year. But there's a lot of people love Giannis, and he hasn't won as much as I would like him to. We'll see if he can. I don't know. He's a great player. He's, high, he's really fun to watch. Can that translate to playoff wins and playoff success long into the, you know, can he get his team to the finals? I don't, I don't think so, but we'll find out. I think the Celtics and the 76ers are both better than the Bucks. but hey, it'll be fun to watch what happens with Giannis and can he take his team a little farther? Okay, uh, Lawrence wrote in. <sighs> he says, hey, Zach, just me again, because I think, I think I read like, I read so many Lawrence questions. Lawrence, you have good questions. Sorry, I read a bunch of yours. I don't mean to leave other people out, but you know, your questions are, Lawrence is fantastic because I'm here because I'm concerned with your boy, Baker Mayfield. Not a lot of analysts these past few weeks have been crushing Coach Kitchens because of his play calling. He's always says, he says, now a lot of analysts these past few weeks have been crushing Coach Kitchens because of his play calling. Surprisingly, I haven't heard a lot of people call out Baker. I went and watched the past few games and man, he looks like a different person. Baker's been so frazzled in the pocket these past three weeks and has been trying to extend plays with his legs more, which in turn have caused him more harm than good. My question to you is, Zach, who do you put more of the blame on for the Browns' struggles, Coach Kitchens or Baker? Um, there are three things, I think, when you watch the Browns. One is that their offensive line is bad. They, they have a bad offensive line. And, you know, clearly that's gotten to Baker Mayfield's head. The second thing is I don't think the Browns have the emotional maturity to handle the pressure of this year and to handle losing the way they've lost and the way I think they could continue to lose. And third is that Freddie Kitchens, their first-time head coach, is not good enough of a head coach and not experienced of enough of a head coach 
to manage the culture in Cleveland. Plus, he's running. You know, let's make fun of him a little bit. He's running on fourth and nine. That's awful. Like one of the worst play calls I've ever seen. Sorry, I get mad. I could. I watched. I was watching um TV, and I was like, "What in the world?" It's fourth and nine, and the Cleveland Browns call their running play. I think it's the worst play call I've ever seen in my life. It's easy to make fun of. It's like a. It's a giant like wart on the side of your face. It's just asking you to be talked about. But man, so here's the thing with Baker Mayfield. Um. I got mad. I don't, I don't know where that came from. I just had a burst of energy. I was like, get mad. Um, Baker Mayfield looks really, really stressed. I think the pressure and the expectations are finally kind of getting to him. And, uh, you know, he, he did accept the weight of an entire city. He accepted the weight of Cleveland on his shoulders. And I think that's just a lot for one guy to handle. And so he's forcing things. He's pressing way too hard. I think he needs to relax and let the game come to him. Rather than, you know, whatever the heck he's doing. I love him. I love Baker. I believe in Baker Mayfield. I think he's a great football player. But yeah, he's escaping the pocket way too early. He doesn't trust anybody. He's trying to do way too much. He's running around. And he's just not playing well because he needs to let the game come to him. And, you know, I think he needs to do some soul searching, get back to his roots. Because he's at the heart of Baker Mayfield. He's a good football player. He's a warrior. I think he's a good leader. He's got to let go of some of the nonsense and I think focus on who he is. And if he gets back to that, he, he can win. I, I believe in Baker Mayfield, but only if he gets back to what he's done his entire life, which is, you know, make good decisions, not try to do too much, and play within himself. And I don't mean not try to do too much. He's got a great arm. He doesn't need to run around and extend plays. He can win with his arm. He's highly accurate. He's got great receivers. And so I think Baker Mayfield needs to relax a little bit and let the game come to him rather than pressing and trying to do too much. Okay, uh, Philip wrote in and said, Zach... He says, hey, Zach, I was wondering who your picks would be for a potential Super Bowl run outside of teams like Kansas City, New England. Underdog teams, so to speak, such as San Francisco or maybe the Texans. Can you see anybody making it that far except for teams that are currently deemed as the favorites? Uh, I had an answer you know, kind of written down. I said that the Colts, you know, everyone kind of wrote off the Colts when Andrew Luck got hurt. Uh, but they have a really complete roster. And their quarterback, Jacoby Brissett, has been playing great. I think there's a chance that the Colts surprise people. Their roster is so complete. They can win. And, and Jacoby says good. Their roster is incredible. But I will actually, Philip, you asked me to go kind of outside the box. I think it's possible the Colts would be considered, you know, one of those teams that everybody talks about all the time. Here's a team nobody's ever talked about. The Detroit Lions are 2-0-1. They should be 3-0. And I think they've elevated themselves from a team that is... They've elevated themselves from an average team to one of the upper middle teams. Like Of all the average teams in the NFL, I think they might be the best. And it's possible they are an elite football team. They have, I, I like their quarterback, Matthew Stafford. Highly talented, good. They have a solid offensive line, a good defense, and a head coach that is interesting and young and doing some curious stuff. And so I don't want to, you know, you asked me to, this is a reach. And I was, Philip asked me if I could make a reach. So let's do it. It's possible the Detroit Lions have changed their culture enough and are turning things around with their franchise. I don't know, but people do change. And the, the Lions are clearly trying to change and trying to turn things around. Watch the Lions and the Chiefs this week. The Lions have a chance at home to beat the Chiefs in their dome. And even if they don't win, they could put up a really good fight and that could still be a statement. Hey, we're the Lions. We're not a bad football team. 
But really, the best thing the Lions can do is they can fight all they want. They can make it a close game. If the Lions beat the Chiefs this week, it's a statement win that says, hey, we're not the Lions of old. We are here, and we're really good. I don't know if they can. The Lions might get blown out by the Chiefs, but if they do beat the Chiefs, there's a reason for it. And I think the Lions could be showing signs of a team that is turning things around and becoming a high-level, possibly an elite NFL franchise. I know it's silly. I know it's a stretch, but you asked me to make a stretch. Hey, the Lions are the team I thought of. Micah wrote in and said, hey, one true question for the episode is, have you ever played The Last of Us? And how does The Last of Us 2 look? Wish you the best. Uh, First of all, man, The Last of Us. Dude, I love The Last of Us. It's a fantastic franchise. Uh, they've only released one game. I like the DLC. Uh, I think it was, uh, it was the two girls, Ellie and the other girl. It was fun, man. Um, I love Naughty Dog's developer. <laughs> I love the developer of The Last of Us, Naughty Dog. If you know the history of Naughty Dog, they made the games Jack and Daxter. They also made Crash Bandicoot. I never loved Crash Bandicoot, but I did love Jack and Daxter. As a kid, that was my favorite series. And to this day, my two favorite video game series of all time are Uncharted and Horizon Zero Dawn. I love Horizon. I love that kind of game. But The Last, but the Last of Us and Uncharted are both story-driven games. And the gameplay is fun. But the story of The Last of Us is so cool. And I, you know, I love it. And I think The Last of Us 2 looks fantastic. I will be, the minute it's released, I'll be playing it. That's how I'll put it. Uh, I think it comes out February 11th. Man, you better believe I'm excited for The Last of Us. I don't play a lot of video games. But every once in a while, there's a game that's so good that makes me make take a break from my regular life and begin playing games again. Horizon Zero Dawn did that for me. Any Uncharted game does that for me. And The Last of Us absolutely is one of those games that will make me change my entire habits. It'll be the first game I've played in two years, but wherever since Horizon came out. But you better believe, yes, I'm playing The Last of Us. It's going to be fantastic. And I will talk about it on the show because, man, apparently people like it and I... You know, in brief little tangents throughout, you know, between topics. Yeah, I'll definitely talk about it. Sorry. I know it's a sports podcast. You asked, hey, that's the fun of this topic because I can say whatever I want. Stephanie wrote in and says, who do you think is the worst quarterback in the entire NFL? (sighs) Okay, I'm not going to answer this the way she wants. The worst quarterback in the entire NFL I have, I really don't know. Uh, But I will say there's a quarterback who's driven me nuts for years. And I, this guy infuriates me more than anybody else. It's a quarterback, the former Jaguar starter, Blake Bortles. Oh, he is awful. I, I don't want to say I hate the guy, but man, um, I think actually I should do a film analysis of Blake Bortles down the road. He is so frustratingly bad. He, first of all, cannot throw the football. Like he literally actually straight up struggles to throw the football, which is like, I think that might be the number one thing for a quarterback is, hey, uh, day one of quarterback play. Do they go, <laughs> like, well, you show up to play quarterback and they go, hey, uh, can you throw the ball? And, and Blake Bortles will go, kind of. And they go, yeah, get over there. Go play tight end. Like, Blake Bortles can't throw the ball. And the second thing is he's terrible at reading defense. He makes awful decisions. He threw the ball so many times into triple coverage. I really should do. When the year ends, I should do a film analysis of Blake Bortles. It might seem mean-spirited, but he... I can't believe he got a big contract. Like Blake Bortles, the former Jaguars quarterback, nobody irks me and irritates me more to watch than Blake Bortles. I hate him. I think he's awful. And he's, he's, he's not the worst quarterback in the NFL. I'm sure there's somebody worse. I can't think of him right now. But to me, that's the worst, most frustrating quarterback in the entire NFL to watch. 
Okay, uh, Harv wrote in. Harv wrote in and said, love the videos. Do you think the Giants could finish with a winning record this season? So uh, the Giants, yes. Yeah, Harv, yes. The Giants could finish with a winning record, kind of. Uh, the Giants, especially with Daniel Jones at quarterback, have a chance to win a lot of games. I, I think so. I really believe that. Uh, they have 13 games left this year. And uh, seven of them are absolutely winnable. Seven of their 13 games. And if they win seven of the next 13 games, the Giants would finish the year at 8-8. Eight and eight. The seven games I think are winnable for the New York Giants are the Redskins. They played them twice. They can win both of those games. The Cardinals, the Lions, the Jets, the Dolphins. And they play the Eagles twice in the next 13 weeks. I think they could definitely win at least one of those games. So if they do that, the Giants would finish 8-8. Eight and eight. Now, here are the teams I don't see them beating. The Vikings, the Packers, the Bears, the Cowboys, and the Eagles. And I think... So I think they lose to the Eagles at least one of the two times they play them. And they're not going to beat the Patriots. So I love Daniel Jones. I think they could go 8-8. Eight and eight. That's a great hope for them. Now, maybe Daniel Jones can steal a game from a really good team. Or maybe like the Vikings quarterback gets hurt or the Bears quarterback gets hurt. And then they win that game too. But Daniel Jones is still a rookie quarterback. He looks fantastic. Remember, he's a rookie. And I think the best hope for the Giants is to go 8-8 eight and eight this year. That's the best outcome for their season. And uh, I actually think they don't want to go 8-8 eight eight because it would give them a worse draft pick. And because you're not going to make the playoffs, I think the Giants should root for a bad, a bad year and a good draft pick so they can make their team a little bit better next year. But hey, um, also you don't want to lose intentionally, so it's kind of a weird middle ground. But yeah, the Giants, they have a chance to go 8-8. Eight and eight. Maybe 9-7 and seven if someone gets hurt. And so the Giants could finish the year with a winning record, in my opinion. Ben writes in. Ben says, which position is the hardest to evaluate in your opinion and why? For me personally, it's the offensive line positions. I find it really difficult to evaluate college lineman prospects. Uh, ben, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to answer your question the way you quite want. I'm going to get a little creative, but I'm still going to speak on the topic you want. I think it's better than not answering the question. I'm not sure who the hardest position for me to evaluate is. I, I kind of just do my thing and I don't know. I haven't run into that. I haven't run into a problem in any position yet. But what I will say is that I want to share my philosophy on how I evaluate players who are coming into the NFL. Number one is physical ability. Physical ability does matter. Uh, you want players who are really talented. I know it's not se- as that is sexy. People. That's why people fall in love with guys like DK Metcalf. But I will say physical ability is not everything. This is where I think I differ a lot from other evaluators. Most evaluators get hung up on, he's fast, he's tall, he's quick, whatever it is. And uh, I don't think athleticism is everything you need to have as a football player. There are two other factors that are, I think, simple, but very, very important. Number one is when you watch film of a player, does he do his job properly every single play? Is he in the right spot? Is he running the right coverage? How is his technique? Does he do his job well? I would rather have that over a guy who's super talented and does his job wrong. So does he do his job well is number one. Number two is effort. Does he give great effort all throughout the game and fight really hard the entire game? Till the end. There's a big defensive tackle for Utah that people are evaluating right now. And uh, last week against USC at the end of the game, USC had the ball and they just needed to run out the clock. Utah needed a stop. USC had multiple runs right up the middle at this guy, and his effort was awful. He couldn't stop him, and he didn't. He, he looked lazy. He looked slow and like he wasn't fighting very hard. 
He disappeared at the end of the game. And I watched that, that defensive tackle, and said, oh, he's pretty good, but yeah, he just really sunk way lower down my board because his effort was not what I wanted at the end of the game. He didn't fight hard. And fighting hard matters. Do you battle? Your effort is a choice. It's one of the only things. You can't choose how tall you are. But your effort is a choice. Do you fight hard or not? And that guy from Utah, to me, didn't fight very hard. Some people are just unreal talented. And at a certain point, talent overrules everything. That's why some guys who are really talented, Josh Gordon's a great example. Josh Gordon's got more chances than a lot of guys in the NFL because he's physically incredibly, incredibly talented. And you want guys who are really, really talented. But for the most part, I'll basically always take a guy who's less talented but does his job properly every single time, who's always in the right spot, who fights really hard till the end of the game, who battles, gives really great effort. I think evaluators far too often fall in love with talent and forget effort and doing your job, being in the right spot. Those two things matter too. And they'll go, this D lineman's amazing. He's, Ugh. it's like, but he's undisciplined. He has all these problems. Like you might think you can coach his behavior and change that, but you're just drafting because you think he like, his physical ability is really cool. Now, every once in a while, so I think, I think physical ability is pretty overrated, but every once in a while, you get a guy who's got all three, who, you know, is like Julio Jones is super talented. He's also really disciplined. He works incredibly hard. He's in the right spot all the time. And his effort is unbelievable. Julio Jones is one of those rare special players who has all three things you look for, all three things you look for in a football player, talented effort and does his job. So, you know, I just think that, again, talent sometimes is overrated. Pay attention to the other two things when you're evaluating players. Are they in the right spot? And how's their effort? Those two things matter a lot more than people give them credit to. Patrick writes in. Patrick says, hey, Zach, I love your show, and I really appreciate the effort you put into, into the show. Thank you. I, I, I love the show. I'm proud of it. I, I love it too, man. Thank you. He says, my question is, what is your opinion on this year's LSU team? Do you think Joel Burrow could win the Heisman and do you think LSU has a chance to win the national championship? Greetings from Germany. Keep it up. Patrick, you're from Germany. I don't know how I missed that when I compiled the questions. Patrick, thank you for listening. That's really cool. I love when we have international listeners of the podcast. Patrick, LSU could get to the national championship. Uh, I'm not sure they could beat Clemson, but I like their team and I love their quarterback, Joe Burrow. Here's the obstacle in the way of LSU getting to a national championship. Alabama. On November 9th, they play Alabama at Alabama in Tuscaloosa in their in Bryant Denny Stadium. I think that's what it's called. And if LSU can win that game, then the rest of their schedule is very manageable. They they could actually go to the national championship, but they got to beat Alabama. The biggest game of the year for LSU is no, November 9th at Alabama. If they can win that game, I mean that's their entire season. If they can win that game. Yeah, they they have a chance to make it to the playoff and go on to maybe get to a national championship. I don't think they beat Clemson, but they could if they can beat Alabama. That's the game. When you asked this question, that's what immediately popped in my head was, man, November 9th at Alabama's coming up. I like their pieces. I like what they got, but they got to win that game before we talk about national championships. The final question comes from Sam. Sam says, what do you think of the Saints after seeing them beat the Seattle Seahawks? I think the Saints defense played fantastic. They lit up a little bit at the end, but by the fourth quarter, the game was clearly over. Also, Teddy Bridgewater showed he can still manage a starting quarterback role, which leads me to my next question. Do you realistically see Teddy Bridgewater being Drew Brees' successor? Um, 
like Sam, the Saints roster is unreal. Like they're they're super super good. And I should have given that a little more weight when I made my topic when Drew Brees got hurt. I should have said, "Hey, even with Teddy Bridgewater, their their roster is so good that they can win with average quarterback play." Cuz they did. Now, here's the truth. They do not need Teddy Bridgewater to be Drew Brees. Teddy Bridgewater just needs to be a game manager. Against the Seattle Seahawks, he made great decisions, did a lot of stuff I like. And your, your second question is, is he Drew Brees' next successor? I did a whole film analysis about this. Uh, I'm still waiting to see what Teddy Bridgewater evolves and becomes. Can he make tough throws downfield into tight windows? I have no idea. I don't think so. We'll really find out. But there's a lot to be desired from Teddy Bridgewater. However, there's also a lot to love. Is he the next predecessor? I don't know. But the reason why the Saints beat the Seahawks is because their roster is unbelievable. They had, a, they had a defensive touchdown. They had a special teams touchdown. Clearly, their team is really, really talented. And uh, they don't need a great quarterback to win. Guys, that is Ask Zach. Thank you so much. I'm going to move on to my last topic of the day. There are eight games this week with really fun storylines. I want to discuss all of them. It's week four of the NFL season. Uh, the first game I want to talk about is the Titans at the Falcons. My question for this game are which team can avoid starting one and three? Both teams, the Falcons and the Titans, started the year with big expectations. And for both of them, this is a really big game where they got to have they have a chance to fulfill their expectations. Can they, in fact, do it? The second game I want to talk about is the Chiefs at the Lions. The Lions are 2-0-1-1. They got off to a good start. And my question is, can they make a statement and beat the Kansas City Chiefs? Are they a good? Are they an elite team that can make a statement, or are they just another average team that gets clobbered by the Kansas City Chiefs? Who are the Lions? Their identity will be shown a lot this Sunday in Detroit. Number three, the Redskins at the Giants. Can Daniel Jones, in fact, will Daniel Jones win a game he's expected to win? He should. The Giants are better than the Redskins, and their quarterback, Daniel Jones, is awesome. Can he make it happen again week two? Two weeks in a row, excuse me. Number four, the Browns at the Ravens. The game is in Baltimore. My question is, are the Browns the doomed little brother? I think it's possible the Ravens clobber the Browns. Maybe not, uh, but will the Ravens dominate? That's what I want to see next week coming up on Sunday. Number five, the Vikings at the Bears. My question is, whose quarterback plays worse? I don't know. Mitchell Trubisky's really subpar, but this is a big game. And guess what happens in big games? The Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins, is terrible in big moments. So we'll see. I don't know. Uh, I think that's going to be an ugly defensive battle. And uh, my question is, can Kirk Cousins play well at the end or not? If he gets shown up by Mitchell Trubisky, man, he really, his reputation's already in the drain. If he gets shown up by Mitchell Trubisky, embarrassing. Number six, the Jaguars at the Broncos. My question is, first of all, can the Jaguars rookie quarterback Gardner Minshew keep it going and win another game? That'd be really cool. I'm rooting for him. Love him. He's my favorite football player in the NFL. I hope so, but maybe not. The next question is, first of all, can the Broncos win? They're 0-3. But can the Broncos even get a sack? You haven't gotten a sack all season. They're the worst in the NFL, and they have two good defensive ends and a good defensive coach. I don't know what's going on in Denver, but it's not working. They play at Denver. Let's see if they can get their first sack this week against Gardner Minshew and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number seven, the Cowboys at the Saints. My thoughts are the Cowboys should win this game. Dak Prescott needs to take care of business. If he does, the Saints win this game and beat, sorry, the Cowboys win this game and beat the Saints. But remember, 
<laughs> First of all, the Saints head coach, Sean Payton, hates the Cowboys. They did not hire, he was an assistant with the Cowboys and they did not hire him to be their next head coach. He had to go to New Orleans to get a starting gig, to get a head coaching gig. So he always brings his best and tries to beat the Dallas Cowboys to prove them what they missed out on. My question is, will Teddy Bridgewater elevate his play? He'll need to if the Saints want to beat the Cowboys. He might. He might not, but he might. That's what I want to see this week from Teddy Bridgewater. And number eight, the Bengals at the Steelers. If the Steelers start 0-4, the year is over. Look, the Bengals' year, I think, is already over. They're terrible. The Steelers have a chance. At least, look, here's the problem with the Steelers. They suck, but expectations were high because they're the Pittsburgh Steelers, and every year they've been pretty good so far. They're, they have no leadership. Their team is awful. They're making a bunch of mistakes, and they're getting old. They cannot afford to start 0-4, and if already at an 0-3 start, they're probably already screwed. So, man, let's find out what's going on with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I, I just think they cannot afford to go 0-4. It's just a bad look and really embarrassing. Guys, that's what I think the storylines are going into week four of the NFL season. Now, the Patriots do play the Bills. The Patriots should wipe the floor with the Bills. Uh, they're both undefeated. It's like a people are like, the Bills and the Patriots. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. The Patriots are going to kill the Bills. Um, that's all I have, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. Uh, my name is Zach Schalmer. Hope you have a great day. And uh, I'm going to edit this podcast, which will take me a million hours. So thank you so much. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are done.